This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. for the Dale Jr. Download. We are back again. Do you like that? That was great, Dale. Yeah? Fantastic. You kind of looked around like... I'm always looking around, seeing okay. squirrels. <laughs> I, I love that. By the way, when I was on vacation, I'm listening to the download, and I hear Dale Jr. I mean, I'm listening to it, having no idea how, yeah. it, how it's going to sound or whatever. And Dale Jr. comes in, welcome to the Dale Jr. download. Matthew doesn't like my intros. <laughs> I hope you like that one, Matthew. And I'm like, oh, there's no telling what led into that. <laughs> we got a great show today. Dale Jarrett is our guest. And I'm excited about that. He's a great friend of mine, somebody I look up to. Uh, so let's get started. All right, guys, we got, um, before we get to Dale Jarrett, we've got to um, just kind of talk about what's going on in everybody's life. Mike, you've been out of town forever. Oh, I didn't know if you were coming back. <laughs> Why would you think that? I was I out a week. Because usually when people are out of town on vacation, they still sort of communicate and you hear from them. And I got plugged, man. It but I could. You, could well, you, could, you know, you kind of, hey, wow. things are going great. How's it going? How's work? How's, how's things back in Carolina? <laughs> he didn't he give didn't a crap. Care. Nope. I loved it. He I, had a little service. You know, there was some social media posts and, and jokes. Uh, <laughs> I had this frequent listen. Frequent. Uh, social media jokes and <laughs> that's not, not even true. It was funny though. I I was out of service and no Wi-Fi a lot of the time uh, when I was out. But when I came out of the uh, canyons that I was in for dinner or something, there was one night when I I just walked into sixty five text messages <laughs> and like sixty three of them were you and Tony rapping back and forth yeah. about stuff. And I'm like, what is going on right now? Like it's just, you know, your phone lights up, there's smoke coming out of it. <laughs> but it, it it was just converse text conversations general, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, no, I didn't have a whole lot of service. But I knew you guys were you're taking care of things. And I'm, right. I enjoyed break, listening man. to the download and the door bumper clear while I was gone. Y'all did a great job. Kelly did fantastic. Haley Deegan was good. Yeah. So uh yeah. I thought Mike was gonna come back and say guys I had a life-changing experience. I'm moving to the West Coast, and <laughs> I'm going to live in a he's national gonna, park. He's yeah. going to just camp out at the. I'm going off the grid. Me and my family, we're going off the grid. He's and, wearing only Patagonia. Yep. Yeah. I want. I want to start climbing. I want, I, do I look like a climber? <laughs> no. Thank you, Leah. Well, I don't <laughs> even know. I mean, you were yeah. really quick at that. Uh, no, it was fun though. I mean, I'm telling you, it was nice to kind of get out there and uh, you know. I got to try that. Sometime. Detach. Yeah. Did you miss me? Is that what you're saying? Oh. I think it is. Come on. Oh, of you course. Did. Yes. <laughs> you lie. Mike, this is the way it is. So <laughs> if I go out if I go radio silent for four days you would, and I, you've done. And I come back, Mike goes, Are we still doing all that stuff you talked about before you left? Because I haven't heard anything about it in four days. <laughs> I didn't think or or when I come back and I'm like, hey man, how's this moving along? Oh, you serious about that? You haven't said anything about it in four days. <laughs> oh, so this is a so this is the same. This is a good. Pick this is this a stuff. thing that's going on. I didn't. I thought he was just doing casual conversation. I, were you upset at me because I wasn't responsive or something? I don't know. I mean, we've, I we've think got you a are. We have it is. What? I didn't we know have, this. Yes, we have <laughs> this big thing going. This amazing podcast. Our, yes, our media company, Dirty Mo Media. Yeah, your your vision, your dream. I was gone like a, like five days. And nothing. 
He you, that's in. not even true. You I did. In. I oh, he did. He tapped into me to, right. to have a phone yeah. conversation and on then, the disappeared, group then disappeared Lucky. again. No. Lucky then, you. No, no, then you, he disappeared again. You yeah. were a part of it. You were in the group message. Nah. In the group, and you did. Yeah. You responded to me. What are you talking about? And then it went away. It was fleeting. <laughs> I was in California, and it was 9 o'clock their time, and I was he looking for us. the podcast. It was fleeting. I was looking for the podcast, and it wasn't out yet. I'm like, man, it's midnight. Matthew's sitting there probably still editing this thing. And so I jump in the next morning. I was talking to all of you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, okay. I missed you. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Aww. I did. I did. I missed you. Just, and just you, you not. Uh, he, I Dylan think he's. Only, I miss you all. I think he's just saying that. No, I did. I missed you guys. But I was proud. I, I love the content you guys. How did. was your? How was your trip? Oh, amazing. So you said it was the best trip ever. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was up there, and it was the best trip ever because I had low expectations on it. This was a, this was something my wife wanted to do. Hold, hold on, I didn't want hold to go. on a second. Like okay. you go to national parks, but the best part of the trip happened to be the fact that he had a hell of a time with blowing out a tire and I did have stuck it, on the I side did of have road. A, I did have logistics problems. So it was it was like a uh, you know. Clark Griswold vacation. Say, Griswold it family vacation. Yeah. That was I haven't even told you guys the the craziest part of this trip. It wasn't the tire blowing out. No, no, no. And I, and I'm That's trying to decide how I can even say this. But listen, we were in San Francisco, and we had a friend that took us around that day. And I got pictures. All right, so look, so we we take my kids, my daughter. I got a ten and a seven year old. Take it to a park. Now in San Francisco, they don't give a damn. All right, and there was this guy who was suntanning in the park with just like a thong on and a, and a toboggan. Wait, a, toboggan. a thong? A toboggan? a toboggan on his head and a white thong. And my daughter <laughs> sees it. She's like, that man's in his underwear. And I'm like, hey, it's all good, whatever. We're in San Francisco. All right, so how do I do this? <laughs> he developed an erection. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> First time erection's been so So I'm, listen, so, so he developed an erection. And everybody, he developed it. How yeah. close were y'all to this man? Do you want to see? <laughs> no. Wait. wait I got, <laughs> I, listen. So I, I, listen. I'm, I'm photobomb y'all's pictures? I'm videoing my daughter because she, she was doing these little things where she's like, okay, to, right now we're in San Francisco. We're at the park and stuff. And then and she goes, and she's talking about this dog that's in the park. And she thinks the dog's cute. And then I catch this scene here with the guy. And I'm like, and I start laughing. And then Gracie <laughs> says, she goes, that man has something sticking out of his underwear. <laughs> I got it on video. Oh, no. I would have put it on social, but I don't even know what's appropriate at that right. point. Yeah, that's probably not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, no. you know. Good call. Especially if you think, like, he ain't talking to me and all this stuff, and now he's going to post these uh, inappropriate so things really on social media. It really is a life-changing trip. Yeah. So, so my wife and, and her friend are laughing. They're like, go get in the car. Get the girls in the car. Get the girls in the car. It, it was funny. Run. It was hysterical. And we just So that was like. That was a moment of our vacation that, you know, our girls, you know, we, we, it was an experience. $50 yeah. that never makes the NBC I, show. I don't, I, Brian, I was, I was gonna, Brian, do you need that picture? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask about the rest of the trip, but I the, won't. The rest of the trip. Listen, <laughs> we went to, we, we, we left San Francisco. We, you know what? The, just experiencing. New stuff. Like, so you went to the, San Francisco. You went to the forest, right? Some big giant. The forest. Tree. I mean, it's, yeah, it's big a forest. Giant, it's giant, tall, erect sit, trees. Yo, yo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most, hey, the most erect trees in there the are in the world. Like, these are the most erect trees out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> big trees. <laughs> these are big trees. Uh, 
uh, we went to uh, uh, Yosemite, and then we went to L.A., and uh, it was a fun, fun trip. That was, that was L.A. <laughs> that was like, I mean, you know, you've been to L.A. We, we were winding to LA her before. Down. We had, and, and we were winding her own down at that point, but we went to Universal Hollywood. You know what's funny? I, I need to send you this picture. I, you're right. We haven't talked a lot. So, like, <laughs> do you remember when me, you, and Tony snuck onto that that? Uh, jaw set and yes. watch that tour. Yes, yes, we yes, were yes. on that tour. Oh, you took the and tour. I took pictures uh, that backlot <laughs> yes. tour. And so we were like, I knew where the fire was going to come out and the big shark was going to come yeah. out. My, it scared my daughter half I to bet. death. But I said, yeah, that's where we were standing. We went all through that. We we did that backlot tour. That was a lot of fun. Then we came back. Yeah. And then you were in Key West then uh, at that point. So yeah. I didn't want to bother you then. Yeah. 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 I tried to text Mike a couple times in Key West. No, you didn't. Yeah. I would message you and yeah, I think I texted you. Are you looking? Are you checking right now? I made this. I asked Mike on, to, if I could have Wednesdays to be like off You're the dead. grid. And so now when I text him on Wednesdays, he doesn't reply. <laughs> I think it's just out of spite. Like, you asked for it. Is, is that first? <laughs> it's true. Did not even go there in my mind, but that's funny that you'd say that because yeah, I don't. I don't want to mess yeah. with your Wednesdays. I forget that you have a wife and two kids, and that's probably you do do that, you don't know, you? That's, yeah, that's probably what's going on in your life. Probably, yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah, right. Having to explain to my daughter what you know what was going yeah. on in San Francisco. She yeah. has nightmares now, and yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I'm gonna have nightmares. Oh my goodness. Oh, uh, so we had a uh, uh, Kentucky. We had an amazing race. Uh, did you get to see uh, the last lap, Mike? It's funny. It was. Uh, I didn't watch the race, but then I, I fell asleep, and then I woke up, and I was like, I want to see who won the race. And so I go to Twitter, and then I saw the NASCAR and NBC Twitter handle said, "Get to the TV now. Yeah, we're coming yeah. up with our last restart." So I, all I saw was that last restart, yeah. and my gosh, incredible! What Probably, a race! Yeah. Most pressure packed sort of pace laps up building up to a restart that I can remember in some time and it delivered what a you know what a wild final few laps but honestly the entire race for me was extremely entertaining and you know obviously compared to the product that we've had at Kentucky over the last couple years it was a big improvement a much more exciting race we had some battles for the lead that I wasn't anticipating having right Uh, I mean last year Truex led every single lap one by 13 some seconds it wasn't even there, there was no battle for the lead and Sunday or, or Saturday night we had you know we had battles for the lead multiple times throughout the race even leading up to that final uh the final few laps we had an amazing couple of laps with Joe Logano and Kyle Busch chasing each other all over the racetrack down the apron on the front straightaway and all the way down the back straightaway on the apron of the racetrack Clint Boyer and Kurt Busch had an amazing battle for the lead uh, Eric Almirola, I mean, there was all kinds of moments in that race where the the, the front was interesting, right? And, uh, man, you know, at the end of the race, you get on social media, and I know it's a small chirp. It's not the entire uh, pie. It's only a very small sliver of, of people on social media. And, and Twitter's not a big – Twitter's there's a lot of users on Twitter, but it's small compared to the general population. The overall, yeah. But, man, people still had a way – of going, yeah, well, you know, those last two laps saved it for me. That was a boring race till the end. I'm like, what in the hell are y'all watching? It's Twitter, man. Oh, God. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be just specific to Twitter. It is it, specific it, to Twitter. It, it happened with that. Uh, okay, NASCAR and NBC has that initiative, My yeah. Track, My Roots. Right. And they, uh, Pam Serba uh, put out this incredible. Awesome video. Awesome video. And there was one line in there that bothered, and it was a buddy of mine, too, called it out about if they're $50 jalopies, 
you know, that Ken Squire said it was written to the script. Yeah. And he had a beef about it, and that's all he whined about on Twitter. I'm like, why don't you look at the the fact that it's like this awesome thing they did for grassroots racing instead of s- selecting that small tw- sliver yeah. to complain about, but that's yeah. Twitter. Every time that I open my Twitter app, I am compelled to find something that's going to make me write some snarky reply. <laughs> that seems like everybody. Maybe it's, it's so just the platform just brings the it out. So I think it's platform brings it out in humanity. Yeah. <laughs> Ricky Gervais has a funny bit about tw- what Twitter really is, and yeah. he says it's like if you go into the town square and so obviously I'm trying to emulate what Ricky Gervais. The presentation's not nearly yeah. as good here, but he says you see a sign that says guitar lessons. Twitter's like calling up, but I don't want guitar lessons. And he says, "Oh, did I did I pop <laughs> Holy there? Crap. Did you I did. pop? You did." But and then he good. goes, "There's a number on it." And he goes, "Let me call that number." And he goes, it's like, "Hey, you got guitar lessons? I don't want them." <laughs> I don't want guitar lessons. He's like, they're not for you. Just keep going on about your day, yeah. right? And he goes, that's Twitter. And I'm like, that is, that that is, is exactly Twitter. Right. Yeah. That is true. It's like, you know, people that you don't have relationships with and that you just yeah. put something out about your own life or I thought that race was good. And then they were like, but it wasn't good. It was, yeah. you're wrong. You're wrong. Laps, laps 40 to 45 were very boring. Right, right, right. <laughs> Do better. Right. And, and shame on you for thinking that. Yeah. I can't wait for Gluck's Twitter poll so I can say, no, it wasn't a good race. <laughs> the, guy, the guy that won, I didn't like him, so the race sucked. It yeah. sucked. I hate Kyle Busch and Kurt Busch. Oh, God. Twitter. So When Twitter went down last week, it was like, it was you, great. Got, you got a couple hours of like pure happiness. Was there yeah. any, Angels were was flying there around any the part of you hoping that it would never come back? <laughs> <laughs> so in the last two weeks, Facebook and Instagram have been down and Twitter went down, and I'm not kidding you. It was like, oh, Who's, who do we, who do we, hey, wait a second. Who do we celebrate? for doing this <laughs> should we be bothered I mean, should we be bothered that our social media person here was excited that Twitter was down? <laughs> it was like you know you get like two hours of like just you know peace you know i've always Don't wondered i, deserve that? I always <laughs> wondered I, I forgot what my life was like before twitter and here it is here's a two-hour window into what life used <laughs> to mean, be like but I was like constantly like refreshing just oh, to see yeah. So, oh yeah like yeah. you know it's like it's down 30 yeah. seconds later is it still down? It's still down. Oh. Well, look. I was thinking in my mind, like, I bet you some hacker, you know, group, <laughs> some kind of spider hacker group is is responsible for this. And, and man, I'd really think they're cool if I knew their name. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Give them the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> well, that said. The race was good. It was a good race, and I do love Twitter. Um <laughs> You know what it? But can I just say though? You know what it did for me when I saw that? It reminded me that was an epic finish, wasn't yeah. it? We were so close to like an epic moment where I forgot that how close we are at any time for the 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 volatile Bush brothers to develop their rivalry? hatred and rivalry for each other. In I front, think, yeah, in, in public because I, 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 I listen. I know that they say things that they, you know, where they uh, are supportive and they, I think they love each other and stuff, but yeah, at no point do I, do I think that's real. I think that they are just waiting for that ticking time bomb to go off for them to let their true colors about each other go out. And we were close to it. Yeah, if we, they weren't so great drivers and, and if they erect each other, which they were capable of doing, my gosh, the sport is resurrected back to its, uh, to its, its place in the ecosystem because the Bush brothers are the rivalry that we all wanted and needed. And my gosh, man, if, if that could develop. Well, and, you know, I think that looking back, not all brothers are this way. 
but Jeff Bedine, Brett Bedine, yeah, they had their falling out. It it fell, it spilled out onto the racetrack. Maybe it even started there. I don't know, but that was rather public uh, with those guys running over each other a little bit at, at Indy and so forth back in the nineties. Uh, I could see, you know, had Kerry and me been put in that position, boxed, put in a box, uh, and and things didn't go well. How that would that could easily blow up bigger than any kind of disagreement you might have with just a stranger you're sure. racing, right? Yeah. If your brother fenced you, yeah. Like, dang, you're my brother. Right. Yeah. You and let, then you, you know. Yeah, it's a very public display of a family situation. Yeah. Usually, those are private. Because right. you could be more real with your brother than yeah. you can be any uh, anybody else, too. I think that adds to it. Yeah. I don't want to guess where each of those guys are and how they feel about each other, but it seemed to me that Kurt really enjoyed being able to get one over on him, on Kyle, because Kyle's had so much success, so many wins, so celebrated for his, you know, his abilities. Um, I really think Kurt appreciated getting one shot to, to on a big stage, you know, to, to showcase, hey, man, I can do this. I can get it done. And I, you- it, 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 The thing about it is, is like they, they're very competitive with each other, and you can be competitive with anybody you're out there racing, but rarely are you pitted with one of those guys. I, you know, I, I, I raced with Dad a couple of years and hardly saw him. I raced, you know, me and me and Matt Kenseth were great friends, but really we only had about a dozen one-on-ones, right? Uh, and we raced for 20 years together. So Kurt and Kyle, they they've raced around each other for. Uh, over a decade and and probably only have a handful of battles they can really recall one-on-one battles and this was definitely uh, <laughs> one it, for the ages greatest so thing i you know i saw was the guys riding on the car yes i knew you'd love that I, as soon as I, as soon as i saw him do it i'm like oh i bet dale jr's loving this and yeah. then they panned that shot of you guys of the booth and you 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 glowed up there yeah. you were just you beaming up <laughs> I there and i, I knew why i might have been like that guy you saw in san francisco <laughs> <laughs> i um <laughs> I, i'm telling oh, you oh lordy so <laughs> back in the 80s back in the late 80s nascar started to find teams 100 bucks a crewman and dad's team won at Charlotte in 87, and they fined them 900 bucks for the nine guys that rode on the car down pit road. So I think that back then that was quite a bit of money for a team to shell out for no reason. And it just kind of went away. I don't know if the fine was raised or if NASCAR put a squash to it and said stop doing it completely. But I'll tell you this. When I saw it happen, I thought, I don't give a dang what that <laughs> fine is. That's amazing. I hope that they do it. I hope they keep doing it. And when they pulled the car toward pit road, you could we I could see it on the monitor we had. I don't know if it was on national television, but there was a there was a official there, and he was pointing for them each all to get off the car, mm. like pointing each official to mm. the asphalt. You get down, you get down, you get down. And I immediately, I text Steve O'Donnell, who's in the booth next to me in the NASCAR booth, and I said, "Let him ride the car." And he said, "Hell yeah!" Uh, <laughs> and cool. I was like, "All right, you know, I'm hoping. I don't think NASCAR is going to do anything." Now, if anything, NASCAR is going to say in the next driver's meeting, let's not – or they'll put out an email to the crew chiefs, let's not have them riding the cars, guys. That's fine. Uh, which is fine. But <clears throat> hopefully they don't do anything. And riding the car is becomes a, new, a thing. Becomes a thing again. Hey, if it, as long as the car passes tech, yeah. that's the damn that's risk the you take that, yeah. as a crewman. I think it's a liability, you know, if a guy on the front yeah. falls off and gets run over. You think? Yeah, that could yeah. be tough. Oh, and by, as, as far as that goes – 
as soon as they showed that shot of uh, them riding, I could point to the one that was going to fall off. Yeah, right like, front fender. Right, you flag. could see the one. I'm like, yeah, that's right. the guy who doesn't have – first of all – He's he not holding on to a B post. He doesn't look like he has a whole lot of coordination. It's going to be the big – it's going to be the biggest – Impact when he falls. I mean, yeah, that's the guy that's fallen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a liability. Yeah, absolutely. And those cars are paper thin. The sheet metal back then in the seventies and eighties, those were tanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you couldn't even dent the hood when you sat on it. This ain't oh, a, this not a hayride here. Ain't no way. <laughs> ain't no way that thing's going through the Oculus or whatever the hell that thing's called. Octagon. Oculus, Oculus Prime. Yeah. Ain't no way it's going through the room of doom. <laughs> All I know is if I'm a crew chief, man, I'm After like. After they sit on it. If I'm a crew chief, it. I'm like, put your helmet on, boys. We're getting on that car. Yeah. That'd be my reason. Yep. Mm. I knew you loved it, though. I did. Yeah, hell yeah. I'm glad they did it. It was old school. And thought the night couldn't get any better, and it did. All right, we had the gloves program for Nationwide oh. Children's Hospital this weekend. We had a lot of drivers wearing them, over 50 drivers wearing the gloves. Nationwide Children's Hospital is a is a you know great place. We love supporting it. We love helping raise money, and, and uh, me and my wife have a fund there that's for research, and uh, the gloves are worn by the drivers in the race uh, Friday night and Saturday night, and <clears throat> they get auctioned off after the driver and myself signed them. The auctions are going now. Um, NASCARfoundation.org slash Dale Jr., I believe, is yeah. the, yep, the right. yeah, NASCAR Foundation.org slash Dale Jr. is where you go to bid on these gloves. And they started at 30 bucks, so there should be, hopefully, maybe some affordable ones out there for you folks, but there's also going to be some that are you know, going to go up there and get jacked up. No, and rightfully so, some of these should go high. I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah. We're trying to raise money for charity. I love that you, last year and this year you had first uh, wins of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, first, yeah. It was Chase's first win in his career, but uh, you got Kurt Busch's first win of the year. Um, the scary part is, is that hopefully no, you know, the, the big worry, and you don't even think about it, you're excited about the program. You get to the track. You see the drivers wearing the gloves. You're you're pumped up, and and they're tweeting, and everybody's supporting and pushing out information and driving people to the, to the auction. And and there's been months of lead up to this, getting the drivers' sizes, getting their gloves printed, getting them comfortable and happy, and getting the gloves in their hands, uh, and and getting them to the racetrack. Uh, and and then the race is happening, and. You're like, hopefully nobody loses their gloves. Hopefully nobody's gloves end up missing or oh, that's true. Yeah, in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, that is the big that could fear. Happen. That absolutely could happen because uh, you know somebody grabs them or they go get in wrong yeah. hands or something or disappear. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it doesn't this year. We've been pretty good over the last couple of years, but anyways, NAS, uh, NASCARfoundation.org/slash/DaleJr. Go bid on some gloves. At least see what they're going for. Talk about it. Celebrate it. Help us raise some money. Hey, before we bring out our guest, I want to talk about my relationship with Valvoline. It's always been a great one, but it's a little bit unique. Uh, We do a lot of custom stuff, a lot of personal stuff. Being the only motor oil brand with a dedicated engine lab makes them a great partner and under the hood, but uh, we also do some pretty neat builds. Uh, We built the 1974 Chevy Cheyenne short bed truck. I was born in 1974. I love that body style. They helped me build a custom orange version of that truck. We took it out, had a lot of fun with it, thanks to Valvoline. We've had a good time working together. Not short on some funny moments. Two years after the truck build, they made me into a bobblehead uh, for their Pit Pals promotion. I still remember doing that production and didn't really know that the commercials were going to turn out as good as they did. You know, when you're doing that stuff, it just, you hardly, you don't know whether it's going to be good or not. 
No, no, and as a matter of fact, when they say, hey, guess what? We got this good idea. Yeah, you're you're going to be a bobblehead, and we're going to do commercials. <laughs> and oh, said that, yeah, you're yeah. literally working. There's a bobblehead. I was working with a bobblehead. You know, I got right? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bobblehead like, was his own guy. It wasn't me. Yeah. No, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was weird, but it turned out very, very funny and uh, something I was actually real proud of. So no other motor oil brand goes the extra mile to build a relationship like Valvoline does, which is why I trust them. In my engines, and you should too, from high mileage rides that need that thick anti-wear film to new engines that have carbon buildup. Check out Valvoline.com slash Dale to find the right product for your engine. That's Valvoline.com slash Dale. All right, so um, here we are, Dale Jarrett in the house. How's well, it going? Fantastic. Thanks yeah. for having me. I, I watch this all the time and <laughs> listen to this, and I always wondered what this place really looked like. I now know. I know. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we, we're pretty proud of it. Um, glad to have you in here. And uh, one of the things that I think I'm most interested about for you is your start, right? So I lived your, you know, I say I lived it, you lived it, but I, I was around <laughs> watching your you know, your, your career and, uh, with Yates and even before then. Um, so what I'm curious, I've become really good friends with you, and I, I don't know as much as I'd like about your start. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we'll go all the way back. You know, how old, and, and how old was your dad when you were born? Uh, let's see. My dad was born in 32, so he would have been uh, 24 years old. Really? Yeah. And, and how much of his career do you remember? Uh, quite a bit. Really? Yes, I, I do. There, there are bits and pieces of it, but that was such an important time in my life to me because it, it was about getting that time. You know, any time we can spend with our dad is great. And most of mine came either at the garage going with him, uh, during the week as he ran the business and worked on the cars to, going to the racetrack with him. And, and, you know, we traveled as a family a lot of times. And then there were other times I just, you know, rode with my dad and because and I loved to, to go there and, and be a part of that. So, you know, I remember going to so many short tracks, whether they were dirt tracks or if it was Asheville, Weaverville, uh, just, you know, all across up and down the East Coast and uh, having that time to, to spend around and, and you know, being around, you know, to me, it, it's I, I just thought everybody kind of did this. I, I didn't yeah. know that there was something different. I, I knew that everybody's dads did things a little differently, and but not knowing that what my dad did was something that was totally different than than what most went through. So you know, I, I just enjoyed and embraced the time. So so you travel. You you got to experience a lot of his career as a driver, and your sons uh, are athletes. Play a lot of sports. One of them's you know hoping to be a Major League Baseball players doing really well. Yep. Um, and uh, Jason's a spotter. Uh, I raced against Jason a little bit. We were great friends hanging around the track. Were you playing sports in high school? Did yep. that take a bit of your time away from yeah. being at the racetrack? Yeah, yeah. You know, racing was something that I loved and I was around. And, and that time with my dad was great. But my dad 
retired in 1966. I mean, that was his last year. I hadn't even turned 10 years old when he ran that last race in Rockingham. And uh, so I I talk about a lot of his career. You know, he started it, but but the majority of his career, uh, as far as being a professional race driver, I do remember because most of that came from basically 59 to through 66. And uh, so, you know, we got a lot in a short amount of time. But, yes, the answer is that – my time that I loved at the racetrack, but then when Dad retired, you know, I'd, my brother started me playing baseball when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And I looked at myself, have always looked at myself as a competitor. Uh, can you call me an athlete? But you know, we won't get into that debate about race drivers being athletes. Yeah. But but I was an athlete that I played when I got to the, the high school level. I played four sports, baseball, football, basketball, and golf. And uh, actually, they, they changed the rules in the state of North Carolina to allow me to play two sports at the same time, which wasn't allowed uh, in the early 70s. Uh, I wanted to play golf and baseball in the spring, and you really were only allowed to play one sport. And so uh, in my junior year, they allowed me to play uh, baseball and golf uh, at the same time of year. And so as long as it didn't happen on the same day, I couldn't couldn't play a baseball game and then go play a golf match too but yeah. uh, they, they, uh, they changed actually, the rules for you they it was because be- of you it, it was because i say that it, it was because of the athletic director at newton conover high school that contacted the the uh, north carolina uh athletic association uh, about me being able to do that because the rules were that you could only play in one sport during during each season and so in me wanting to do that so they changed it uh you know it was just a temporary thing that they said okay we'll allow this in my junior come back my senior year they they changed they had an update on it, and and actually the, the first year I said they wouldn't let me play on the same day. It just never happened to where I had to play because we didn't play baseball games on Mondays, and that's usually when our golf match was. So, But my senior year, they amended it to the point that I couldn't compete on the same day because we got to where we played baseball games. We got we started playing more golf matches. And so, uh, yeah, they, they changed the rules so that I could do that. So that's, that's what I love to do. I love to compete. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but but as much as of it was that I loved to compete, uh, I even though I made good grades, I, I wasn't a great student because I didn't want to be in class. I wanted to be on a field somewhere playing and competing. So racing wasn't something that I thought I was going to do. I, I really right. thought I was going to be a football player or uh, or play golf. Yeah. And uh, so I, I literally didn't ever drive a race car. I drove go karts and things, uh, and and didn't it wasn't in a competing level. But I, I didn't drive a race car until I was twenty years old. Wow! Ooh, yeah. So wow. Uh, completely different path. I mean, think of the drivers now. Yeah. How much Starting success they've old, had? Yeah. yeah. And how much success a lot of them have had at the highest level by the time they're twenty. So, yeah. did, 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 when you, your dad retired when you when you were ten. Yeah, I was said. just getting ready so, to turn ten. So. Nothing during that time made you go, man, this is what I want to do. I mean, like, th- th- was there not a fascination of racing at all? Because I know we retired early, yeah. um, and, and you were already on the sports, but was there just even a little bit of, oh, a, yeah. of, a, of a seed planted? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I would sit in the, the family car in the driveway and, you know, act like I was driving in the Daytona 500. Right. So, yes, I wanted – 
There was something in my mind, but I didn't. It was so totally different. I could go, my parents could take me to the golf course and drop me off there and pick me up when it got dark. Uh, or I could go to a, I could ride my bicycle in Conover to the baseball field and practice and play games. Uh, so I could do all of that. <laughs> you know, then when I got to, to the junior high level and, and stuff, you know, the, the sports teams were there. So all of that was there. It didn't cost me a penny to do any of that, really. I mean, it cost my parents to belong to a golf course, but, uh, uh, you know, it didn't cost anything. And so knowing the racing side of it, it somewhere along the way, I don't care who you are and where you get started, it's going to cost somebody money. And, you know, my dad came along at a time that even though he had two championships in the late model sportsman division and then two more in the cup level, um, you know, it didn't pay a lot of money. And um, uh, so he didn't have money to see if, if I was could drive a race car or not. So trying to figure out that later. But I always wanted and thought that that would be so cool. How am I going to go about doing that? Because I looked at racing as as high level of competition uh, driver and car versus the next driver and car. Mm. How was the retirement handled in the house? Like that, you know, if you did retire a little bit yeah. early, was that sad, bittersweet? Was Ned like, this is what I got a plan? I'm going in this new direction. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was tough. It, it was hard on my dad. Uh, even though my dad has always been very goal oriented and he had a plan to that point. And, and I guess one of the mistakes we kind of laugh about uh, uh, is that he told my mom that. Uh, because, I mean, it was it was as dangerous as the sport always is going to be because of speed. You know, it, during those times when your grandfather, Ralph, and, and my dad, uh, when they were racing, I mean, those cars and, you know, it was a dangerous sport because they were still running most of the time well over 150 miles an hour at, at most places. And purely stock two. car. Yes, purely stock car. So there wasn't a lot around them, so it was very dangerous. So he told my mom that – he said when he got into the, the cup level, we moved to Camden, South Carolina. He was driving for Bondi Long. And he said, look, if I can win two championships, uh, I, I'll retire. And you know, not wow. thinking that it would come in a five-year span. <laughs> and <laughs> so there he was. And he wins the second championship in 1965. And she was like, okay, you're done, right? And, I mean, my dad was a young man. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, exactly. Uh, How old was he? Uh, 34 years old. Uh, when he retired. So the, his, yeah. your mom was like, hey. You said. Yeah. You said, and I want you to, and I, <laughs> yeah. I don't want you to go back. Yeah, you know, it's dangerous. A, I mean, you know, they, had she had too. seen friends of theirs uh, through the years, you know, lose their life uh, driving race cars. Uh, and, and so, you know, she was concerned. Here we have this family. Uh, you know, my brother, Glenn, my sister, Patty, and myself. And, and, you know, she wanted, she sees people around in the neighborhood that we live in that have this stable family life. And, you know, uh-huh. the, they're there all the time. And she was like, can't you do something? So my, you know, my dad lived up to his word. And, and we went from Camden to Greenville, South Carolina. And he got into a coffee business, which is crazy because as I think <laughs> that was of the it, next thing. Yeah, that was the next thing coffee. after that. Yeah, yeah, coffee business. <laughs> Did yeah. he tell her that years ago? And she goes, "You said you were going to open up a coffee shop." No, and, but, no, <laughs> no, no, no. He didn't. He didn't. That part of it, as much as my dad has planned out life and and done so many things, right? He didn't really know what he was going to do right then. And, uh, but he never, I'll give my dad credit as many opportunities and some good opportunities came along to him, uh, to, to get back in a race car. He never got back in a race car at any level at anything. Did uh, you guys ever try to talk him into it? Um, dad, come on, look, you're, you're he really would talk good to us. Yes. He would talk to us about opportunities that were there. And what are some of them? My mom, we might even recognize. 
guys. I, I mean, yeah, his his whole deal was you know with Home and Moody. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I mean, he was a Ford guy, and, and when he was with Bondi Long, so they they kept giving him opportunities that would would come up. You know, and they you know they knew who they had and what they had and the the talent that my dad had. Yeah. So that was probably the biggest thing, and those those happened for probably three and four years. So up all the way to, to 1969, 1970, I would say that those opportunities continue to come. And, and he held them off. We, we moved back home. Coffee business didn't last very long. Uh, that was with a friend <laughs> and uh, a good friend uh, that, that he had for a lot of was years. It a, was it a shop or no, no, oh, it, it making was, coffee coffee? Yeah, like it was actually the, the it kind of the early starts of, of delivering coffee to businesses and things like that and actually coffee machines. And yeah. uh, so it, it was kind of something on the uh, cutting edge at that time in 1966, if you will. Yeah. And uh, He was so, running coffee is what you're saying. Yeah, it, pretty you, much. You had, you had those people running moonshine. Yeah. He was running coffee. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, so totally different. But then the opportunity came to go come back home to Conover, North Carolina, uh, and um, to get in business at Hickory Motor Speedway. And uh, to, he was going to be a part owner and promoter at, at Hickory, and that's when the track was still dirt. So uh, that's when things turned around, and he was in that. And then, you know, he started – he would do the announcing at the track. Then the opportunity came along to work with MRN uh, as they came along. And uh, so things just started going from there as far as his broadcasting career. Okay, that makes – that connects all the dots. So uh, I collect a lot of photos of my family and in uh, a lot of Ralph's photos is Ned Jarrett. Yeah. Ned and Ralph together. Mm-hmm. And there's pictures of them um, hanging out. Like there's, yeah. it's, it's not them, you know, beside race cars or battling on the track. Um, and they spent. I didn't know this that they had a pretty good friendship. Yeah. And you know you. Yeah. And they had a falling out. But how was how was <laughs> oh, their right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They raced yeah. each other a lot. Now, and you said that. Um, Ned won a couple sportsman championships, and that's you know yep. uh, Ralph had one as well. And yep. is that where their friendship yep. grew from yes. the sportsman ranks? Yes, did. And once they started competing, I, Ralph was already racing some when my dad kind of started his career and and got and started moving it from Hickory and and uh, you know making more of a career of it. And so they became good friends. They were great competitors. Uh, I, my dad and I was just talking to him uh, last night about. Uh, a little more of this just to refresh my memory because they're just bits and pieces that I remembered mm-hmm. along the way. And he talked about how that that Ralph Earnhardt was probably the hardest racer that he ever raced against. Said he would not give you an inch uh, at any point in time. Didn't matter how good of friends they were off the track. He said he still raced you just as hard. And then he said he'd be completely fine. He's a different person off the racetrack. But one thing that I always remembered and I didn't remember all the details so that's why I kind of went to my dad and my mom and said hey refresh my memory as to how this happened so it was 1956 and they were racing uh against each other you know they were running gosh three four maybe even five times every week and uh so they were they ran a race in Gaffney South so this is 1956 Uh, I wasn't even born at this time and um they were running in Gaffney South Carolina uh, my dad was leading the race. They took the white flag, went down into turn one, and Ralph hit my dad and wrecked him, tore his car all to pieces. And so to back up a little bit, so my mom was pregnant with me. And so my na- my mom is Martha. Your grandmother is, is Martha. Martha. And so and we'll get into that with all the names of within our two <laughs> families. There's so much that connects this. It's unbelievable when you think about it. But um, so there was... Uh, so that was Thursday night. There was a baby shower that was planned by 
your grandmother, Martha, for my mom. Really? Yes, who was pregnant with me. So that was to be Friday night in Charlotte, and then they were racing Saturday night, maybe at Hickory, I believe. Um, so had this plan. Well, Ralph wrecked my dad. Ralph wins the race. My dad is not happy about this. So he said, told my mom, he said, I'll, so it was at this little diner deal in Charlotte that they all used to go eat at uh, after races and things. And, and he said, I'm going to take you, but I'm not going in there because <laughs> Ralph was going to be in there. And he said, I'm not going in. So my dad dropped my mom off for this baby shower uh, for which, which that was me. And, <laughs> and uh, but sat in the parking lot in the car the whole time. And, oh, no. And wouldn't go in there. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> said it strained the relationship uh, because my, my mom and, and your grandmother were, they were just the best of friends. And uh, he said it went on for quite a while between he and Ralph, my mom and, and your grandmother, they kind of, you know, said, hey, so the boys it. are going to be boys, yeah, and, but we're not going to let it ruin our uh, friendship. How, how long did they, did uh, they ever get over it? Yes, they, they did. But my dad said that it was literally into the next year before he forgot about that one, that that one lasted mm. a while. So you said the names are... There's, yeah. Let's we'll talk about that. Okay, so we have – so your dad was Dale. Uh, so it was Ralph and Martha and Dale, and then it was Ned, Martha, and then I came along as Dale. Yeah. And, and so then uh, – <laughs> You, you got, think there's, a, there's a, some sort of a reason why you're Dale and that, because of that friendship that two Marthas had? I, yeah, my, I've asked my parents that, and they said that – Was that know, just a real was, common – It was a name that they, name? they liked. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and uh, said it just happened that – that it was that, yeah. that your dad was there. And uh, so then we went on. So then you and Kelly, which is spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y, uh-huh. and then my wife, that, that Kelly and I got married in 1984, and her name was spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y. Yeah. And then we have a daughter, uh, our second daughter, Kelly and I, uh, it's name's Carson. And oh. so we spelled her name K A R S Y N. And I remember <laughs> that that your sister and Jimmy Ellis that they liked that the spelling of that name. They like they were going to name her Carson, uh, but they liked the spelling of that, and so they spelled it the same way as as my daughter. Wow! So uh, a lot of crazy things there. Between Coincidental the two stuff, yeah. So you talked about Ned entering as a broadcaster. You talked. About, you mentioned Glenn, your brother, um, and I've always kind of been curious about his driving career. You both is Glenn playing sports as well with you? Yeah. How does Glenn get into racing? Yeah. So so Glenn was Glenn very smart person. Uh, graduated at the top of his class uh, out of high school. Uh, was nominated for the Moorhead Scholarship at, at University of North Carolina. So he gets there on a partial baseball scholarship. Also, Glenn was a really good baseball player and uh, played a lot of American Legion ball around. And so he, he goes to, as a catcher, uh, goes to the University of North Carolina. And he'd really never, Glenn had never really thought that much about racing, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he enjoyed being around. So Glenn is six years older than me. He's right at your dad's age. And, and so uh, um, uh, he he goes and does that. And, but Glenn's just so smart. And retains a, a lot of knowledge, some of it very useless, but uh, <laughs> still he, he's smart. So when he gets, when he finishes, uh, just before he finishes college, he's kind of coming back and forth from Chapel Hill. Uh, he, he gets the bug to want to drive a car. 
uh, at Hickory. And so my dad is is running the the track uh, and managing the track and part owner at, at Hickory Speedway. And uh, Glenn gets the chance to drive a car and and uh, with some buddies of his that that they had. And and so he just decided he so he tries it and he's actually pretty good. Glenn's a big guy. He's like right. six four, you know, two twenty five, and and so fitting in these cars is not the easiest thing for him. But it, you could tell that he had a a really he had a huge desire to do it but he had a lot of talent also to to get it done and uh, uh so he uh continued to want to once he got out of school he, he kind of got into our family lumber business that we had uh, that my grandfather had uh for years my dad worked at i worked at uh, the whole family it took everybody to get it done but uh so he started racing uh, on a more regular basis got hooked up with some guys uh, glenn hoke and some people from hickory speedway that were legends uh uh there and and uh, as far as building cars and maybe cheating cars a little bit better than others <laughs> along the way. But no. uh, Glenn got hooked up there. And, and actually, the first race, and I don't, I should have called Glenn, but his first race, early 1970s, uh, is one of the first races that your your dad came to run on asphalt, came to Hickory. Uh, but anyway, Glenn, Glenn's first win at Hickory in the late mall sportsman division was passing your dad and, and beating him. Wow. So, so it was a pretty cool night yeah. to, to have all that to happen. <laughs> and I actually remember the first time your dad came to Hickory. I don't know if it was his first asphalt fault race but i can remember him coming as one of the first few that he ever ran in coming to hickory and uh my dad you know it was great to have him there and and uh my dad had given him a little deal money he had a pretty good night i think he ran the top five yeah. and uh but i can remember i was in my dad's office just a little trailer as a matter of fact the trailer's still there to this day that's where you know my dad did business at hickory motor speedway but i was in the trailer that night when uh dale earnhardt comes in after it and says look you know you know, I spent money on the tires and all of this, and, and he didn't have any money and to really to make the next week work. And so my dad said, I, I'm going to give you a loan here. He said, so I saw him handing the cash, uh, but he said, you have to come back sometime, you know, within the next few weeks and, and race for me again and let me know you're coming so I can promote it. Right. And uh, he said, but I'm going to advance you this. And, and he did. And your dad lived up to his word. He came back and raced. So he wanted to promote it because of Ralph. Ralph yes, dad, that's right. Yes. Dad being okay. Ralph's son. Dad, yeah, I Dad had no it. real fame, but right. Ralph did. Yeah. I was about That's to right. ask, why would he be promoting yes. Dale Earnhardt? It was but the that name. makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ralph was a legend, yeah. you know, in the Carolinas and, and all around as far as, you know, his driving skills and, and what he had done. So, yeah, yeah the, the name, you know, took him right there. And people loved it. I mean, they flocked around your dad like he was the superstar already uh, that he was to become. Yeah. So, Glenn, get, watching Glenn or seeing Glenn, when I kind of – research and watch old races and stuff it seemed like glenn had a lot of opportunities and um you and him kind of came up around maybe the same time he maybe yeah. had some sportsman races and opportunities in the sportsman series before so how was he putting those deals together was his success at hickory so good that people were you know was those his cars that he put out on the track like the ford the blue and white yeah. 24 no no, he he. Glenn never owned. He Glenn was smart enough not to get into the ownership <laughs> business. I'll give him this. We're, we're two as close as we are, and he's been my best friend forever. And he he was always putting deals together and, and drove for other people. 
So he, he made those things work. Was his success at Hickory great? No, but it was good enough that people realized that he could drive. And yeah. where could he take that next? So he was always wheeling and dealing, trying to put deals together, get a little money here, you know, take it there. Uh, Marvin and Rhett Thaxton out of South Carolina, he, he made a, a late model sportsman deal with those guys. And, and they had been running cars forever and ever. And, and so he drove for, for them for a while. I can remember uh, him getting an opportunity to drive for Richard Childress at Charlotte. Uh, in a, uh, a cup race, and, and myself and Andy Petrie were down there. It, this is when my car- racing career was just getting started. Yeah. So this is like 1976, I believe. And so Glenn was getting this chance. and But Richard had, you know, let him – had the car or drive the car but he didn't have the people to work on it because Richard was still driving his car then too and uh, so Andy and I were were helping to work on I didn't know much about the cars but uh, it wasn't until once I started getting my career going was really when I first started learning about cars and how to work on them and things so yeah. you know Glenn was just putting these deals together and and you know having some you know some success along, just enough success along the way but he never really got that opportunity so as I said we're so completely different my life has been about competing and willing to take huge risk betting on myself because Mm -hmm. I felt like that whether I was on a baseball field or a golf course or a football field that put me in the position let me have the ball or let me have the steering wheel I'll make things happen and so I was willing to leverage a lot on myself and so as I got my racing career started, that's that's what I did. I mean, I was the one that, that said, okay, got to go to the bank and somebody has to borrow the money. Jimmy Newsom, who helped me tremendously, uh, my uh, buddy that went to school with me, and Andy Petrie, they were building a car, and they didn't have the money to finish it. I didn't have any money. My dad wasn't going to give me the money, but he helped us get a loan and talk to a few people, and that's kind of how mine started. So that's where – Mine and Glenn's careers are completely different. Is Glenn wasn't going to do that. He had to have the the monies from you know wherever he could come up with that to make it work. I was willing to bet on myself enough that to go out. I mean, it took years and years and years. You know, people go get college loans and and it takes them a lot of time, a lot of years to pay it off. My my loans were it was for. The, the knowledge and, and going to college in the world of NASCAR and, and figuring out how I was going to do it. Took me a lot of years to pay it off, too. I can't help but wonder. I mean, this is interesting because you've got this family, a racing family, but it's also a right. You, you and Glenn are sons of, of parents who, I mean, your mom wanted your dad out. Yeah. And you and Glenn also seem like you had opportunities in other – I mean, you guys are ex- ex- excessively good at athletes. You're excessively good athletes. You've you got sports. Did your mom not try to talk you guys out of this? Because you oh, and yeah. Glenn are both now developing racing careers, but y'all very specifically, your dad got out of it because I'm assuming of the danger. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and she she was not happy whatsoever that that this was a path that we decided on. I mean, there were so many things, you know, as my dad had uh, Hickory Speedway, you know, she was hoping that there was something there besides the driving side of it that we might could get involved in, that this might be a family business. Because then he expanded from there to come down to Metrolina Speedway in Charlotte and uh, through some friendships that he had developed, that some people that bought that speedway. So he managed that. So we he literally 
ran races on back-to-back nights. We'd be in, in Charlotte on Friday night for Metrolina and then Hickory on Saturday night for, for the race there. And, I mean, he did the, the announcement. I mean, he ran everything, and so he incorporated the whole family. I mean, we did this as a family. My mom sold tickets. Uh, she worked in the office. Uh, you know, I, I did everything from selling tickets to handing out programs to selling Coca-Cola and popcorn. Uh, you know, you name it, and, wow. and I did it. And, and my dad did the announcing uh, at the races, and Glenn helped uh, facilitate and run everything there too so you know it was it was family and and the sport was still in our blood but she was hoping that that it wasn't going to be the path of of driving cars because uh, it it was tough on her what was the first race car you drove in competition uh a chevrolet nova it was a limited sportsman (laughs) that's what jimmy newsom and andy petrie were uh andy's two to three years younger than me so we knew each other our families knew each other growing up i mean little town of conover and newton uh and, and jimmy and i played sports together so but they were building this car and uh, it took forever for us to finish it. And uh, my dad, I remember the first time I was going to finally get to the track and drive it in. So that was 1977. My dad actually sold his interest and quit promoting uh, after the, the 1976 season. Why? And was doing more because of his uh, radio work mm-hmm. uh, with MRN and then TV stuff that was coming along with CBS at that time. Gotcha. So he was seeing another opportunity there uh, to to stay in the sport but to expand and, and something that he thought might be a little easier path than what he was doing because, I mean, promoting and managing and running a racetrack, you know, a little, especially a little track like Hickory and, and Metrolina, that, that was tough business. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they were building that car, and, and uh, I, you know, I, kinda, I finally got the bug. I'd done things. I had got out of high school. I'd got married. Uh, Jason was born. So, you know, I'm having to, to work. I'm doing all – I'm working at boat, building boats. I'm working at a what? printing company. Wait, you're building boats? Oh yeah, yeah. In uh, in Newton, uh, there's a uh, gosh, I can't even remember the name of it now. It's been so long, but uh, yeah, they uh, literally built boats there. And I, Andy Petrie and I worked there, and <laughs> we'd do that during the day, That's and awesome. we'd go work on the race car at night. And uh, so I literally learned how to work on race cars. Andy taught me so much because he just brilliant mind and uh, had that so uh we're building this car and getting it ready and and finally in may of 1977 we get enough stuff done to get the engine andy had originally he was going to be the driver and uh uh so by getting uh, enough money or built up between borrowing it and getting a little sponsorship they said okay you can be the driver and so i'd never done it never competed we went to test practice i'll call it uh a couple of times in, in 1977 and then finally we got everything together enough to get to the racetrack and we even we couldn't even get there on time and that's the one thing that i hate more than anything because my dad always taught me if you're not early you're late and so that's the one thing that i've always done and here we show up late it's on a saturday and and of course jimmy had the tire shop newsome tire which he still has in in newton and uh uh, but had to do that until uh, noon on Saturdays. And so it, we, Andy and I helped him so that because he did so much for us. And so we just couldn't get everything together. So I got no practice, uh, didn't qualify. Uh, there were 24 cars there uh, in a limited sportsman race. And uh, uh, so this, I think, is 67 Chevrolet Nova. And I uh, uh, started 24th in a 24-car field, 25-lap uh, race. And somehow, some way, I finished ninth in that race. Wow. And uh, had no idea what I was doing. None whatsoever. That's amazing. And so Bobby Isaac, Bobby Isaac was a good family friend. And uh, uh, we played a lot of golf together and, and did things. And, and, of course, him being from Catawba County. Uh, but anyway, he, 
it, he went to my dad, who was uh, up in uh, the, the press box, even though he wasn't uh, managing or anything anymore. And he said, I thought you said Dale was going to drive that 32 car tonight. And he said, well, he did. He said, there's no way that was somebody that's never driven a race car before. I was all over the place. I, I, sure. <laughs> I was passing. I was in the dirt on the front stretch with the, doing things. It was crazy. But it was the biggest thrill. I mean, and not to brag, but I'd been a good enough athlete between being with good uh, other good athletes to, to win football championships, to win uh, golf tournaments, and do a lot of things. There was nothing that gave me the thrill of finishing night that night. And collecting that envelope that was a $35, $35 in there that we promptly took to Papa Pizza Parlor yeah. in Newton and <laughs> ordered pizza and drank beer. And there and was that money. Spent it. I, why did Andy not drive? I thought you said Andy was going to drive. He wanted to, but he did, because I came up, they, they would have never, it would have been years before they ever finished the car because they just didn't have any money. So I, uh, by being able to talk some people into giving us some money to help us buy an engine and things. And, and as I said, we started a company. It's called – and so my dad had the, the idea when I would decide I wanted to borrow this money to help us get the engine. That was the last component that we – the big thing that we had to, to buy. And uh, uh, he said, let's start a company. And so he said, my initials uh, are DAJ, Dale Arnold Jarrett. And so he said, we can use this in a way that if you go on – so we called it DAJ Racing, but it was also Dale, Andy, and Jimmy. And so it worked for for that time, and that's how DAJ Racing started, and we kept it until the early 2000s whenever we sold everything. But that's that's how everything got started at Hickory that night. And I said, I told my dad that night, I said, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but now at 20 years old, I know this is what I want to do, and uh, we'll figure it out. So you started running every week, or, or what was it? Oh, the- pretty much every week, as much as we could, you know, yeah. as the money would let us. And and so then we we got to the point that I was like, okay, uh, I didn't hadn't wanted Hickory yet uh, in the limited sportsman, but I said, I wanted, let's go try Asheville. So I went up there thinking, gosh, what a eye-opening experience that was uh, running that because, you know, at least Hickory had – somewhat of a straightaway and, right. and Asheville had no straightaway yeah. whatsoever and that was hard on your car matter of fact our car broke because it wasn't even ready to to do that how wow. did you characterize your dad's reaction in response to your driving I mean was he was he impressed he, did he, did, did he, he, was did he impressed. give you confidence did, yes what was he what yeah. was he, he saying? was impressed and and he was he was so excited that because I mean he loved the idea that but I so to back up a little bit I'd I, as I my through my sports in high school, I, I I got some offers to play football at some small colleges, but the biggest scholarship what was the position offer, you played uh, quarterback and defensive back. Of course, uh, so yeah. wherever yeah. they put him, just put put old Dale Jarrett out there; he'll do good. <laughs> so, so I I'd love to do that. So that's what. But my biggest offer came from the University of South Carolina to play golf. I had a golf scholarship there, yeah. and. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, he's so the kind of guy that pisses you off, isn't it? Because he, everything Jackson. he does is just perfect. He's the uh, Bo Jackson before Bo just Jackson. Just does everything was perfect. <laughs> but, yeah, put him not, in a race not car. To, not to that level. <laughs> put him in, that's the bad thing, is it just wasn't to that level. But seriously, you know, put him in. He's never run a race car. He finishes ninth in that car. I mean, didn't even need practice. Just put him on a golf course. He's going to whoop you. What, that was just what, that's what, a competitor. Hey, what do you suck at? Anything? That's, oh, plenty. Yeah. Okay. okay and, and golf right now. So that's uh, unfortunately. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, there's plenty of things. I can't. I, I so I, I don't fish and I don't hunt. I can't <laughs> sing. I would love to be able to sing, but I can't whatsoever. So I don't even try. I'm that person that doesn't even sing in the shower. You know, I <laughs> right down the road in the car. I can't. So I know I can't do those things. Okay, well, I'm, we 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 got off course there. You were actually telling a good story, but we couldn't help but just try to find something oh, yeah, you suck yeah. at. But like, all right, you were talking. I mean, so <laughs> you're racing. Your dad's your dad's yeah. supportive. Now, where does that go? Yeah, so, I, I mean, supportive in the way that a dad supports a son, but you, he, he didn't have the money to throw in. It wasn't going to throw it in. If he'd had the money, he wasn't just going to say, hey, you know, here it is, go do it, you know, figure out how to do it. And, I mean, your dad's the same way, you know, whenever you wanted to start running. Yeah, there's some things that are offered, but he was supportive and helping in any way that he could. And Helping me to understand the pitfalls more than anything else. I don't that, know that I'm drawing. I'm draw, I'm not drawing too many similarities with your situation, to be honest with you. I like this is what's funny because like we've had plenty of stories where his dad. I don't. If I think he was supportive, I just don't think he knew it. Yeah, yeah. In that way, yes. That that my dad was in that he knew that my mother didn't want this. You know, this wasn't. But he was like, I, I you can do this. You you even though you've done very little of it. He said, I, I know because just the sheer competitor that you are. And in my way of thinking and what my dad always taught me, no matter what I was doing, if you're going to do something, do it the very best that you can. And so if you don't, if you're not the most talented person out there, and I wasn't, I mean, there were teams that I was on that I wasn't even close to being the best athlete, but none of them worked harder than what I did. And I thought things through. I, I was always thinking, you know, I, can't say that in the early 1970s you're sitting around watching game film or anything like that but we had a little bit of it but but I was always more prepared than anyone else and and then that that carried on into my racing career in that I I, I wasn't going to be the the natural talent that Dell Earnhardt uh, senior and, and Jeff Gordon and you could the list goes on and on of people that I think about that are so very talented that understood that from the, the time that they knew that's what they wanted to do. I wasn't going to be, but there were other ways of working around that. And, and that started early on. I mean, I knew nothing about building race cars, but by the time that I'd, I'd been in it five or six years, I understood every component of it. I, I mean, to the point that, you know, I could, I'm not going to say I was an engine builder, but I could assemble them, setting them in the floor. I could, I could put them together and we'd put them in the race car. So that, you know, I was always going to work harder than uh, anybody else. I felt like, and you know, going to a wind tunnel at midnight and sitting there watching air blow across car. There's nothing very exciting about that. <laughs> but when they allowed me to say, okay, show me what this does whenever we make this change or when the car does this, when it gets in this position, then I could see what the air could do. So there were things that I thought that as other people were sleeping from midnight to 8 a.m., I was learning what the air was doing on the race car as I got myself in that situation. Uh, and mainly because I saw things that your dad did in his driving career that didn't make sense to most drivers, but there was a reason behind it. And I don't think he was doing it at a wind tunnel. I think he was just exceptionally brilliant in, in that side of it, of understanding air and, and what it could do. And so I wanted to learn more about that. So you're, you're racing weekly at, at Hickory in a limited sportsman and probably, yeah. probably moved up in the, the, the top class. Late model. Yeah, yeah, late models. And that was a struggle. Yeah. And um, so talk, talk about – you know, battling through that and trying to, you know, cause your, your dad's doing his thing, mm -hmm. doesn't have a big 
you know, doesn't have a lot of money or a big cushion to be funneling into your career like, you know, like a lot of dads. But how do you get from grinding through late models and putting together sportsman deals, getting yourself out on the racetrack in front of, you know, which I think that was kind of the connection for you to be able to land a cup ride or cup opportunities mm-hmm. was to be racing on Saturday at Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get there? Yeah, it, it, it was it, it was tough. It, it, you know, in there and trying to do the late model sportsman side of it to move to that next level to race against Tommy Houston and and Jack Ingram when he came and Sam Ard. You know, these guys were in the late model sportsman. They would come to Hickory and and race as they were chasing points all around. And so there was a guy named Carlos Johnson uh, in in Newton that had fielded late model cars for a long time, and you know. I, my dad helped me put some sponsorship deals together. Uh, they were, you know, very. We're talking very little money, but it was enough to to make this happen. So I, that's what I started doing. There was an opportunity to drive uh, what was the Baby Grand Series, yep. uh, and, and uh, I got that chance to run. I think I ran like twelve races and never won one of them, but I had some good runs. But had a couple of major crashes in it too, and, and running good because man, when those things would blow an engine, I mean they would blow up and you'd wreck big time. I mean, all go everywhere. <laughs> so I had a couple of those moments with that. Um, so it wasn't a, a, a situation that I had a, you know, I didn't come from that uh, background of Daryl Waltrip of winning, you know, championship after championship and things like that. So just trying to put deals together to make it happen, do what I could. The, the first opportunity, you know, we would go run some different tracks, uh, in the Carolinas, in Virginia, in Tennessee, go to Kingsport. Do, you know, just do what we could because the the Bush Series wasn't it didn't come along till eighty two, and right. so you know this is seventy nine eighty uh, eighty. I started. I ran a lot of races around and got my first chance to to go to a big track, and that was in Charlotte. And um, uh, you know, I was so thrilled to do that. I'd, you know, I'd help my brother on cars that he had run and you know, racing there. And so I get this opportunity to, to go there. And we basically took a car that we were racing at Hickory and modified it a little bit as far as the body, nothing as far as the safety aspect of it or anything like that. And, um, uh, so Carlos Johnson on this and we, we took it to Charlotte and we qualified for the race and, you know, you had to run qualifying races and things during that time. And, uh, yeah, I was having a blast, and we we so we get into the race, and um, it, it it was going okay, and then we had uh, an issue. Uh, we had two things that happened. We had a, uh, an electrical issue that we fixed. Then I had a brake issue, and I come in, so I lost a couple of laps, and we but we got it fixed. So we go back out, and everything is fine, and we're within the last, I think, five laps, certainly within the last ten laps of finishing the race. And that's all I wanted to do was go finish. And I'd yeah. run pretty decent. I'd learned a lot. And as I went into turn one, uh, Gene Glover uh, was driving his number 71 car. I can still see it. And anyway, he blows an engine going into turn one. And as he, I'm probably 20 car lengths behind him. And so, you know, it's – you're running 150 some miles an hour at that time, and uh, anyway, the the things that I'd been told about when things happen that you know if a, if something happens to a car going into the corn into turns one or three, they're generally going up the racetrack, and so make your move to the bottom. So that's what I did. But there was all on the track. But then the worst thing was as he hit the wall and comes back down. Well, as I see him coming back down, I hit the brakes and the brake pedal goes to the floor. 
And so that it, what we thought we had fixed, it didn't really. So I have one move to try to, to miss Gene Glover's car that has come right back down in front of me, and I haven't slowed down at all. And so I turn hard to the right, and when I did, I catch the back of his car with the left front uh, of my – this was a Chevrolet Nova. And uh, uh, so it sends him flipping. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, so it just crushes the left front. Well, I at that time, I still – and, you know, I learned to drive with one foot. You know, you, you use the gas and the, the brake pedal with with my right foot, my left foot. I, you know, the clutch was the only thing I used it for. And so anyway, I had it on the floorboard. And so I guess as I braced, anyway, this again, this is a short track car with just you know aluminum floorboards and you know or the the steel, the metal there, but very thin. Uh, and so it wasn't much there. Anyway, it the impact took and, and as it came back in the left front and it it got my left foot caught in that floorboard. And as it crushed that, it crushed my left foot and ankle to the point that I got out of my car after it, it, because I could see smoke and I needed to get out. But as I lay on the ground, it busted my lip. And um, so I'm literally laying on the ground, but they're attending to Gene Glover, who's been flipping. And I understand, I'm not thinking about that. Anyway, I crawled away because I knew as I looked down at my foot, uh, I didn't really have a lot of pain. But I knew that it, it this wasn't a good situation. Pointing the wrong way or something? Yes, it's yeah. pointing the wrong way. So uh, it, it literally, by the time when they finally got to me, uh, at, literally the, the story is, and this happened, that so I get away from my car. Finally, someone, a guy comes over from the medical team and asks me, he said, are you okay? He sees the blood from my mouth and my lip. And he said, is that your only injury? And so I point, I said, no, my foot. And he sees my foot. And it makes him sick. He he walks away. So here I am laying on the grass uh, down in the middle of turn yeah. one and two uh, with nobody around. And your again. only help has just yeah. got sick. Yeah, so he, gets, so he goes away. Anyway, they put me on the gurney. So I'm laying on the gurney and on my back, and my right foot is up like it's supposed to be, and my left foot is pointed oh. down. And uh, So they take me to the infield care center and then obviously know that I have to go to Cabarrus Hospital. And, and uh, so it was – it was you know, that was your surgery. first big track. Yeah, that, that, that was that. my first big big track experience. What? Wow, was that in Sportsman? Yeah, late model sports. So okay. I've seen that wreck over and over, and it's awful, awful wreck. I've never seen it. Oh, oh it's awful. Ah. Um, oh, you pull it up. Ah. It's pretty yeah. common, but um, I couldn't believe that the. It looks like it. The like it. It wrecked so hard the dash came back and stood the windshield up. Ooh, really? Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah that. As I said, when I hit the brake pedal, I mean, I thought that I was just going to be able to drive down. But when Gene Glover's car hit the top, it came back so fast that, you know, I didn't. And then when I hit the brake, I I don't know if I would, if the brake pedal would have worked, how much difference it would have made. Sure. uh, uh, Because, you know, it wasn't going to slow it down a lot. But, you know, you think it did slow down zero from the time. So, you know, I'm still running 150 miles an hour uh, when I hit him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's how big know, of a setback was that physically and professionally? Yeah. You know, I think there were a couple of things. The, the physical side of it, you know, I was in supposed to be in a cast for they said somewhere between eight and twelve months. So this happened in October, and uh, you know, I was already thinking about 1981. You know, where was I going? What was I going to do? You know, how was I advancing my racing career and trying to put deals together? And and um, uh, so the surgery that was done. Uh, you know, they had to insert a plate, uh, in my left ankle and screws and all this stuff. And, and they said, you know, you're going to be in this cast for a while. Well, I'm thinking, you know, I'm starting to add up the months. I'm thinking, well, that gets into the start of racing season. You know, what am I going to do? And, uh, 
I didn't stay in the cast that long. Uh, fortunately, I healed up a little better, and plus I didn't want to be – I literally cut the cast off uh, in March and said I've got to figure out how to walk around and be without this thing. And, you know, it's getting racing time. And uh, so it's, they told me that I may, may never play golf again because of being a right-handed golfer and the way that you swing a golf club and use your left side. And, and so that, that was the disappointing side because here, you know, I still – you know, I wasn't – you know, I wasn't that very old and, and uh, had this to happen. He told you might not play golf again. I'm like, yeah. wow, this, you know, that's Serious. double-edged sword here. And, and so, uh, anyway, um, you know, they, they eventually took the, the plate and screws out uh, after a year or so. And, uh, you know, it was painful. I, it's still painful to this day. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's something I learned to deal with. But, you know, it's, the, the setback was, it was that I couldn't start the season like racing for a championship at Hickory or something like that. And, and so it took me longer to get that. And, and I, I didn't know where that was going to take me with my career. Then I right. just watched the crash. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Major. And he climbed yeah. out. It was your left uh, ankle, left ankle. Yeah. Cause you climbed out and you actually climbed out and, and there you are. Cli- there down. you are climbing. And you can out. see you're just like, Oh, forget about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. It was oh. kind of then. Yeah. Wow. What? Yeah. I think you can see the, the worker come over and then walk away. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, wow. <laughs> That was a wreck. It's pretty bad. That was a wreck. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and you're and you're sitting here laying on the ground. Here comes the worker. Yeah, he don't want a part of this. <laughs> Not when he saw it. He was okay with what what he saw with. Um, <laughs> he looks. He <laughs> My gosh. So yeah. here's the other side of that too. So then I get to the hospital over there, and they're they're thinking about because it's going to take some stitches in my upper lip. So they were like. So I had a mustache from the time that I could literally start growing this mustache in high school. <laughs> and I, they were like, okay, we, we need to shave your mustache so we can put – I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, I, since I could start growing this mustache, it's been there. It's never, I'd never shaved it. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you're not shaving the mustache. They said, well, we've got to at least shave a little part. I said, you shave the minimum of what you need to shave. Uh, and it wasn't like I had this image or anything I had to uphold at this time. Sure. It was just like – this is a part of me that's been here. And so they shaved just enough to get the stitches in there. And uh, then once they took the stitches out, it grew back. So yes. all, it all worked out. All right. So you you get you, – I imagine you put some deals together and get you a car. Yeah. And- yeah, I got – yeah. So I still drove for Carlos Johnson in, in 81. And then – They built a new car. They, yeah, yeah. Had to have a new car for sure with that. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> did some things. So we raced, we raced more, deciding that once that this – happened so late that it wasn't just going to be for a championship so we raced a lot of different tracks then in 81 put some deals together ran a couple of more bigger tracks and things so that's when they announced in 81 that the bush series was being formed and was going to start in 1982 and so it was taken where you know all of these great drivers from around the country tommy ellis and jack ingram and sam ard and ld ottinger and you know the list goes on and on of these people i'd competed against and watching that were so good you know now they're bringing them all to they're going to run the same races instead of chasing points uh up and down the east coast at all these different tracks and you know you have point uh, races that paid double points because they were a little longer and things now it's all being incorporated into the bush series and so i'm trying to figure out how i can do this i can't I don't have enough money to talk someone into giving me a ride, so I decide that I'm starting my own Bush team. Oh, yes, 1982. Remember yeah. when Glenn was the smart guy and he yes. very specifically That's didn't right. go get into ownership? Did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, keep what going. Was this, yeah. What was this car? What was the, the what, 
I've seen all your cars. Tell yeah. me how much car this was. Uh, so this would have been. So we started out with uh, a sponsorship from Bush Beer. Yeah. In, in 1982, mm-hmm. uh, that and that was help from my dad because he was doing work for Anheuser Busch. Uh, had they had the Pole Award and all of that. So mm-hmm. uh, this would have been uh, Pontiac uh, that we had. How and much money did Bush have for you? Did they have for me that year? So that year, I think I put together somewhere between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars <laughs> to run the whole series. That'll get you. This was maybe races. one truck race and a starting part. <laughs> <laughs> Real fast yes. team. That's yeah. crazy. So that's what that's what yeah. we had for the year. So I didn't I didn't get a car built for Daytona. So my brother, being a good brother that he was, he was driving for uh, Marvin Rhett Thaxon, who had a Ford number twenty four. Uh, so he qualifies his car at Daytona, uh, which I'd never been. You know, never really had the chance to, to race one of these cars there. And um, he says, I'll let you start my car for the points. So I have to, I drive the first part of that race. What a, what a thrill. I mean, gosh, these things were fast. And you know, I kept it on the lead lap and everything. And then when the first caution came along, uh, Glenn got in it and, and finished the race yeah. and, and did a good job. So that's how things got started. And so what I had built were basically short track cars. So we had Richmond coming up, Rockingham, and these tracks. So I had cars. I didn't even, I mean, this was to the point, you have to understand that I didn't, I didn't even have a truck. Right. Uh, I went and bought a trailer that wasn't a trailer to haul race cars on, uh, but it was the cheapest thing I could find. Uh, there were people that I knew that I was borrowing trucks, uh, pickup trucks, uh, sometimes uh, uh, basically uh, a box van that, that I would, somebody might have that I could do that. So Morgan Shepard uh, had a, a garage behind his house up in Hickory uh, that he tinkered with. You know, he was driving, you know, cup cars and things at, at this time. But anyway, he rented this to me at a very uh, small amount, but he had all the tools and everything that I needed a garage because I didn't have any of this stuff. Wow. Uh, he actually had somebody by the name of Rick Bowman uh, that we call Biscuit, and uh, uh, he actually kind of loaned him to me, and he knew race cars and helped me. And so I had people that helped along the way. We, we did all of that, and I think we ended up finishing sixth in the points that year, something like that. And so my, my first big sponsorship deal, you talk about sponsorship, came two years later in 84 was my big year that, that I got sponsorship from Pet Dairy. Yep. And um, that, I was all the way up to $75,000. What uh, a pretty race car. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that blue and, and white, that, that, that was so much fun. And yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just a so, beautiful race car. Yeah, and, you, you know, know, we built these cars, and so I yeah. was learning along the way. And that's kind of where, where it all got started. I was accumulating more things. I actually got my own garage along the way and, and people to work for. Actually, a pretty cool story is that there was a guy named John Irvin who worked for my dad. Yeah. Uh, he's from Newton, uh, where we were from. So he worked for my dad in Newton. He, John Irvin literally moved to Camden, South Carolina, uh, and lived with us in our home in Camden uh, so he could work for Bondi Long and work for my dad uh, and was the crew chief on, on the car uh, uh, down there. And so but when my dad retired, John came back to, to Newton, came back home and uh, had a service station and uh, uh, detailing car business. And I actually worked for him there for a while and doing that. But anyway, I talked him into closing that down and come to work <laughs> for me, and he was my crew chief. Mm. And why he did that, I have no idea. Right. Because yeah, didn't pay hardly anything, but but we kind of ran sound a lot more fun way. than running a dealer or running a gas station. Yes, for I've sure. worked at gas stations. <laughs> not, 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 not really good. Yeah. Not. Not. So, what did you do in in uh, I guess what was the the Bush series that got you your first 
phone call for a cup opportunity. Do you remember that call? Um, I, I think there was a couple of – so I ran – I think I finished second nine times in the, in the Bush Series before I ever won. Mm-hmm. And that first win came at uh, Orange County Speedway in Rougemont. And uh, so what, – what, Are you driving a pet car? Uh, no, that would have that? been. I, this would have been. I think. Uh, now this was after the this crunch. Was, uh, 1986. So actually, I had worked a deal. Mike Curb had actually bought into my team, and I actually moved things down to Kannapolis to his his race shop yeah. down there. And so uh, it was an auto parts uh, deal that we had. Offshore. I remember the auto lube or something. Uh, well, no, that was uh, that was uh, Porta Lube. Porta Lube. Yeah, this is even before that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Um, uh, so he was part owner of that. We were running it out of there. Mike, uh, the poor lube celebrity was a pretty car. Oh yeah. Yeah. That we had, we had, uh, yeah, those are red, white, and blue. So yes. I always liked those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, I kind of had my best years and a lot of good things happened with red, <laughs> yeah. white, and blue cars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Through, through you did the, okay. Yeah. 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 You did okay. So Mike Beam was actually working for, uh, Mike Curb mm-hmm. uh, down and Ron Bouchard was, was driving for them. Uh, yep. uh, and so, um, he, he kind of helped put the deal together because Mike always helped me along the way. Even when he was working for Harry Gant and I was running my limited sportsman stuff, he would get us tires from Firestone at that time uh, because they liked to, to basically – the tires at that time were they, – they needed to scuff an end for them. So we would actually take tires and scuff them, maybe run them a 25-lap race. And so I had better tires and then give them back to them. So Mike was always helping me. So that, that's kind of where that, that started. And then I had a, a couple of races at Charlotte. Uh, that that I ran really well, and Darlington yeah. uh, that that I ran well. I think one was uh, that that got a little bit of attention. Uh, that was Darlington. I, I ran third to Harry Gann and, and somebody uh, uh, in the the sports uh, or in the Bush race there, and yeah. so I think that that helped. But it, it was you know my my first my first Cup race was in 1984, uh, just for Manuel Savakis, uh, who had Butch Lindley to drive sometimes. And anyway, put this together. It was at Martinsville. Uh, was my first cup race that I ever ran. And um, uh, I'd actually had run a race in Nashville, a bush race in Nashville on the Saturday night, flew back with Darrell Waltrip and, and ran that cup race. And actually, one of the coolest things that happened was late in the race, probably the last 20 laps of the race, uh, I was a lap down, uh, but I was running 14th or 15th. Uh, but I caught your dad, who was on the lead lap. And so here I was going to pass Dale Earnhardt at – Martinsville and I thought how good if I can pass him this how good is this so I get underneath him off of turn two and drive down into turn three and thinking okay I got to get in here hard so I get in there well him being Dale Earnhardt he backs out sees what I'm gonna do and lets me go on and wash up the track he drives back underneath me we did this for five laps I would getting my car was better than his was at that time. He had kind of wore the tires out, I guess. And then, anyway, we did this for five laps, and he was just playing with me. I can yeah. remember looking over. You know, we had open face helmet. Yeah. I'm looking over, and he's just grinning at me. <laughs> really? Yeah, because he, he's having fun teaching That's me awesome. these lessons as yeah. this was. So it, it it was a great time. Something I never ever forgot in my entire life. So what did you kind? end up getting? I actually ended up finally passing. Ben's it took me, I'm not the, as I said, I'm not the quickest learner, but eventually I figured things out. So I figured out that if I just don't drive down into this corner so hard <laughs> that he's not going to go anywhere on the top of this gotcha. racetrack until I finally passed him. So you get a, um, 
what was the first stable cup ride? Was it yeah. the Fleet Freelander? Freelander, yeah, 1987. How did that come about? Yeah, that 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 was a tough situation. So I, I was still running my my Bush team, uh, and so running all the races. Committed. That was actually Portalube uh, that that was the sponsorship of the car at that time. And um, uh, this this was a franchise operation that that my dad had some money invested in, but it was trying to get up and going. So, but they had some investors that wanted to put money into car, and so that that's where the Portalube was. But then, so Eric Friedlander had Tommy Ellis was driving the car mm-hmm. for him and had driven it uh, the the previous year, uh, and so they started out the season in '87 and they had some words and things didn't go well. And and Tommy Ellis was a, a friend. Fiery. He was yeah, yeah. And, and he was a friend. He was somebody oh, yeah. that Tommy didn't have a lot of friends right. in there because he didn't he. As what, you know, kind of like Ross Chastain said the other week, you know, it, he Tommy Ellis brought his friends to the track. He didn't come there to make friends, and he was a hard racer. But I was one that he he was a friend to, and so I enjoyed that. He helped me a lot, uh, understanding cars, short tracks, and short track racing. Anyway, so I get a call from Eric Friedlander about the possibility that he's replacing Tommy Ellis. Would I do it? And so I was torn here because I knew how much that meant to Tommy Ellis to have a cup ride, and he's such a tremendous driver. And I, I, I was torn whether I wanted to do it or not. I mean, they were going to put somebody in the car. Yeah. Um, and so I decided, and Tommy was not happy with me about doing it because he he had been told that I kind of undermined him, which I did not. I got a call. I would not, never do that to him. And so um, so our friendship was strained for a while uh, yeah. with that, and uh, I understood that. You know, you you don't want to get in that situation. You know, I had a situation come along a couple years later that was kind of like that, and and I was on that side of it. But so I got that opportunity, and um, uh, but I had this commitment to run the Bush Series uh, with my team, uh, and so I Eric Freelander knew that. So I literally was the first person to try to start doing double duty, running all of the bush races and the cup races. And so Eric Freelander had a couple of airplanes, and he, so I was flying around the country in, in different things. And uh, so this all goes to a story in 1987, my first time at Talladega, uh, going to run the cup race there. And so, I, gosh, I'd never – I'd tested there in a bush car, uh, but had not been 200 miles an hour. And uh, so I get down there, and uh, so I qualify, I think, at like 201, something like that, which is just, you know, insane. Mm-hmm. But the pole's 211 or 212, <laughs> Bill Elliott running there. So I get out in the draft, and I'm running 212, which is just great. But I have a race in Hickory. And uh, so there, there's two things about this. So I have to fly back to Hickory. So I practice on Saturday morning. Eric Freelander sets up a, a – it wasn't his big plane that I'd gotten accustomed a few weeks of, of flying in. So he has somebody that he has talked to. They rent this small plane. So Kelly is with me. We're in Talladega. Going to go back to Hickory. So back up a little bit. I tore up my short track car the week before and didn't have – I was building a brand-new short track car, but it wasn't ready. So I needed a car. So I called Dale Earnhardt, and I said, do you have a car that I can rent for Hickory? And he said, yeah. Yeah, he said, I got I got a car I'll give you. And uh, <laughs> so uh, so we get this car on like Tuesday before I go to Talladega. Uh, the seat that he that your dad drove, they, they, I mean, they literally was not much to them. It's but, an old banjo. Yeah, old yeah. banjo seat, yep. And so I made a couple of adjustments to it, left it. Wasn't going to change that part of it. And uh, he told me, he said, here's the, the springs I ran last time I ran at Hickory and stuff. And we kind of had a setup that we liked, but, but – um, Anyway, we put our setup in it, and uh, 
So I was going to run your dad's car at Hick. We put a couple of decals, put my number on it, and and uh, number thirty two, and and uh, so I come back from Talladega. So. The story is, so we practiced Saturday morning at Talladega, and so Kelly and I are going over to the airport that's right there, which is fortunate, going to fly back to Hickory and race and then fly back to Talladega the next day. And so as we're walking over to uh, the hangar that they told us where the airplane was, we see this older gentleman pulling out this little single-engine plane, and, uh, you know, we just kind of laughed. I told Kelly, I said, well, there's our plane. And she's like, <laughs> Kelly is not a good flyer. And she's like, no, 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 no. Not. I'm not flying on that. Well, that was the plane oh. that we were, that they had set up to fly us. And she was not happy. And um, anyway, we fly to Hickory, land, <laughs> get there, uh, go to the straight to the racetrack at Hickory. Uh, I practice, qualify. And my first bush win at Hickory uh, is in a car that Dale Earnhardt okay. owns wow. me. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's the first race that I won there. What was the body? Uh, was it a celebrity? A Malibu. A Malibu? Yes. Yeah. And, and what were you typically running? Uh, I, I was running Pontiacs. Yeah. You're wanting to celebrate, but I've got a race at yeah. Talladega the next day. And so we do that. At, but anyway, Kel, I, that night, we everybody had kind of come to our small house, and, and they said, Kelly comes and she said, I hope you'll understand. She said, I hate to send you to Talladega, but I'm not, not getting <laughs> back on that airplane. Yeah. And I said, well, I, I, I got it. So I flew back and raced at Talladega. And that was the day then that uh, Bobby Allison blew the tire. That was the oh. last uh, unrestricted Ooh. race yeah. at okay. Talladega or Daytona. And uh, so I, that happened 15 cars in front of me. I saw that happen. So yeah. quite an eventful weekend. How'd you do in that race in the Talladega? In Talladega, race? Yeah. I don't remember. I finished the race, but I don't don't okay. remember exactly yeah. where. But that was eye opening to see that car Oof. flying what I thought was going to be into the grandstand. Sure. So you're running every single weekend. Yes, in this free, Freelander car. Yep. And you're running your your uh, bush bush car. You how does that? How do you go from the Freelander car to kale stuff? Yeah. So so I'm, I'm driving the the Freelander car, and um, Kale had had announced that. He was getting ready to retire with with his stuff with Hardy's. It was his team, and um, so we've we've had some some decent runs um, along the way uh, in the Freelander car uh, here and there. You know places that that you know I like to run. I mean this wasn't a highly funded team or anything, but uh, you know it had done enough there. Uh, and then uh, I, I had a little bit more success with with my Bush car and stuff. And so Cal uh, started talking to me, just asking me what you know. Was I would I be interested in a partial schedule in his car? And so I didn't know about the partial because this Freelander right. deal, you know, was going to be every week. And um, but anyway, so the the fall Rockingham race, um, I'm driving the Freelander car, and so Kale's driving his car and running somewhere in the top ten. And up in front of me is Kale Yarborough, uh, and so I'm catching him. I loved Rockingham. I loved racing at that place and. So anyway, I catch Kale, but catching Kale and passing him, two different things. And so we literally battled for like 12, 15 laps. Never touched each other, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a battle. And uh, so I finally passed him and drove on, and and uh, I actually finished ahead of him, I believe, that day. And and so I get a call from him uh, on Monday, and he said, look, you know, I was impressed with what I saw, and he said, I want to offer you this deal and told me how many races, a hardy sponsorship. And, and so I started trying to put – so I put together a deal 
with Hoss Ellington, uh, partly with the, this Portaloop company with sponsorship from them. And uh, so I was going to cut back my, my Bush series. I wasn't going to try to run the full schedule with that so I could take some money over to there. Mm-hmm. So I, I put together, uh, Kale offered me, uh, what I thought was a good enough deal to take and the opportunity to drive, uh, which was going to be then. So 88 would be a partial schedule, and then 1989 uh, could full. run the, the full schedule in the Hardy's car. And the opportunity, the, car, the equipment, and, and the, yeah, yeah that's, that was the lure. Yeah, yeah, and it, Kale had to deal with Osmobile there and then running, and, and so, you know, it was, just, it was better equipment and, and the opportunity to move. And of course, you know, at Daytona and, and Talladega and stuff, I was driving for Hoss Ellington, right. uh, whose cars, Gr- you great. know, him, Runt Pittman, uh, turning the wrenches and doing the things that Runt Pittman did under the hood uh, <laughs> were pretty amazing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it gave me a great opportunity. You say that with a grin and you say that with a laugh. <laughs> I, I I mean, I got to ask. Uh, he just found he, – he found – He found, he found he, things. He found holes in the, oh, yes. in the intake that weren't there and – Yes. Uh, this is right after the restrictor plates came. So yeah. especially Daytona and Talladega. Gotcha. He could do things a little yeah. different, as a lot of people did. Not that he did this, but you could take a where you bolt the valve cover on, the two top uh, posts that you would put the valve cover on, you drew, you hollow them out, and that goes yeah. by. That kind of goes by or near the intake, and you could get air in there that way. And what you do is you could put anything in there that might melt. So you could put something in there to seal it. So when it goes through tech, it's not breathing, but it goes on the track, it's hot, it melts out. And then now you're pulling, yeah. now you're pulling air, and you're no longer restricted. Yeah. That's awesome. The, the, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. These guys oh, are smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I, I would love, I would love to know all the different ways and methods that engine builders pulled air. Oh yeah. Right. Yes. I would love to. Would yeah. they tell drivers what they were doing? I mean, like, did we, or do you just go? You're on a need to know basis. Need to know basis. Yeah, I mean, much. the less yeah. the less people that knew, the better. Yeah, so right. a lot of times drivers, yep. you might be pulling air and not even know it. You know, yeah. telling what what kind of stuff's been on the cars I've raced all my life. Right. I don't even yeah. know about. Right. Yeah. yeah. Would yeah. you guys ever ask, or do you just not even ask? The only time I think that, um, well, you can answer for yourself, but the only time I ever knew anything about what was going on is when they needed to know what I felt. Oh, yes. So if like we were back, like we were moving the rear end housing. And trying to figure out whether moving the left rear forward and back or moving the housing right to left, which was better, then they would have to explain to me, like, hey, we're, <laughs> we're building it this way and we're moving this part. Tell us whether this rolls the center better. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and, and as far as the engine went, yeah. You, you, as a driver, I mean, you would test stuff and, and I wouldn't even ask them what they were doing. You know, just try to give them a little bit of feedback uh, yeah. as far as what you may feel something doing. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, gosh, I tell this story when I went to work for Robert Yates in 95, it was like six months of going down. And I was going down there almost every day. I was so excited to have this ride at Robert Yates, you know. And uh, But it was like six months before they let me in to where they worked on the intake manifolds <laughs> and cylinder heads. Yeah. I wasn't even allowed in that room. Yeah, yeah Not believe. that I was going to see anything that I could tell right. anybody. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't know what they were you doing. You wouldn't even recognize it if it was there, sitting there in front exactly. of you. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. interesting. That's cool. Brett, that guy, Rutt Pittman, I mean, he had – yes. He always had great speedway stuff. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, they, they lived to, you know, they, they didn't run all the races, mm-hmm. so they had extra time. You know, they ran about half the races. So they had, you know, when everybody else is racing every single week, you know, you're just trying to keep up and run. Well, they had time that they could sit and engineer. He had such a great mind for these things, and uh, he just loved it. It, it. Part of the thrill of him, he wanted to go fast, and he wanted to have the fast car, but he also liked to see what he could get by with. 
you know, and they oh, got yeah. caught with stuff, and you know that was just part of their game was yeah. seeing what you know what can we do that we might <laughs> slide by. Yeah, <laughs> we always had to had the um, we I always like the method of having something glaring uh, so that they didn't see, see the stuff you really wanted to keep. Yeah. They were so if you good. could draw their attention to this area of the to car, this problem, then they yep. never really caught the stuff that you were really right. worried yeah. about morning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Runt and, and Hoss Ellington and that whole crew, of course, they were from the eastern part of North Carolina, so they were kind of away from the mainstream, but it was something that they never lost at was the drinking game. So they, they <laughs> when the garage closed, they started immediately, and they, they won – yeah, they won most of they those won nights. That. Yes, and so uh, and and a lot of their good friends were people that were officials in the garage area. So you know they supplied. So they they were good friends. They were close. Things were different, you know, in that time. And that's you know that that goes all the way back to the you know when this sport was started. Yep. You know, making friends there and getting by what you could. And, yeah. and they were really good at those relationships. See, Little that, jar goes a long way. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting component to the whole uh, competitive advantage game that you, people don't often think about, and that is getting the officials drunk enough to where they're not going to see what's in there. <laughs> not that. And, and yeah. it's, it's like, well, yeah, he, yeah, I got a couple extra drinks from him. And that's right. Another yeah, jar. Let him go. And, right. Yeah, and, right. and it, yeah, it wasn't – wasn't something that happened all the time, but you know, occasionally hey, it would. When, when, when it counts. <laughs> <laughs> so you're driving for Kale. Um, I remember you having some really good runs in his car, Martinsville and Bristol. I think were the two tracks that you always stood out at early mm-hmm. in your career. It was was. I mean, obviously, short track racing is what you grew up on. What was your? Would you agree with that? As far as Martinsville and Bristol being the two tracks where you thought, man, I'm gonna go here and. I can run with anybody. Yeah. I don't care what car I'm in. Yeah. Um, and was it because of your history in the sportsman's and late mile cars? Was it because maybe that was your your first race, your first cup race was at Martinsville? Did that mean – because that's – the funny thing to me is when you watch – for me in my career or anyone else, all through the 80s, 90s, even today, the, the one place you go to and run your very first race in the Xfinity or Cup becomes this – track that's just magical or better or special or easier and like when i won at texas i won my xfinity race there then i won the cup race there and every time i went there i'm like i'm gonna run good i just know him you know even though maybe we always didn't but i just felt like i would always run good there Mm -hmm. so you you know explain to me i guess or share with us some of those memories of running it you know going to martinsville in kale's car and being a top 10 top five car all day long going to Bristol with the Wood Brothers and running up front, leading races. Yeah, those those gosh, that brings back good memories. Uh, yeah, the the probably the race and, and the one that you're talking about at Martinsville in particular was '89, and and you know, it was the year that we'd had the hurricane uh, in North Carolina and had come through. And and uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe your dad might have settled. Or actually, Jimmy, Jimmy Hensley, Hensley qualified your dad's car yep. and sat on the pole there. Mm-hmm. And and so anyway, we race. We didn't qualify so good uh, in Kale's car, so we were pitted on the back stretch. That's when they still had the two, uh, you know, the front stretch pits, the back stretch. So we were pitted on the back stretch, which was a total disadvantage. But you know that you should qualify better if you don't want to be back there. <laughs> and uh, but we had such a fast car, and mm-hmm. I got it up into the top five, and we ran in the top five, led a good portion of the race. But we had a caution late, and um, 
So we had to pit, knowing that I was probably going to come out fifth, but just as I was exiting my pit, somebody was coming in just in front of me, and I caught him with the right front fender. Now, I'd beat this car up pretty good driving through traffic all day, but right. it was so good. It didn't matter what I did to it. It still ran fast. And, uh, I mean, I was you know running your dad down at times, oh, yeah. Rusty Wallace, and passing them. And yeah, so, This was such a fun day. And, unfortunately – uh, when I hit with the right front, knocked the toe out just a little bit on it. And it didn't drive quite as good after that. But we still had a top five run. Yep. And so <laughs> that opened a lot of And that was so much fun in, in leading that. And I think about the other place with Bristol, two totally different ways that you attack the racetracks. But I like that challenge that, you know, if you, if you overdrove the car at Martinsville, then, then you were only hurting yourself. And so I, was, I felt like that I had learned what it took to I, I, I can never remember in my career running out of brakes at Martinsville when a lot of people did. Now, you know, the brake systems you have now is no problems. You don't have to take care of them. But back in the, you know, 80s and 90s, you had to take care of your brakes. I mean, the stuff wasn't that good. And uh, uh, so I, I prided myself in learning how to drive that way. And talking and racing against a lot of people along the way, from Morgan Shepard to Tommy Houston to Sam Art and these people, it taught me a lot about how to get around that place. And so that helped. Bristol was a totally different. In those times, you had to you just attack Bristol as hard as you possibly could, and I love that aspect. I mean, throw it down into that banking, and then just slam the gas and go as hard as you could. That 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 to me at that time, that was the most thrilling racetrack that we had. I mean, you could feel the speed, even though you know you're averaging not even 120 miles an hour around there at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could feel the speed and and just what it would do to you getting slammed down into the to the banking, and you know. And I came along at a time that, you know, the track, there was still asphalt on the track. And yeah. so you had to move around and you'd be on the bottom, then up against the wall. And so it was just so cool to race at a place like that. Yeah. Um, well, you get your first win for the Wood Brothers at Michigan against Davey Allison. For me, I don't know how to put this into words, but for me watching your career, um, it, felt like for, it felt like it was hard for you to get traction. And it was hard yeah. for you to get opportunities. And – here you are driving for the Wood Brothers. They're a great team, but there, there are other teams that are coming to the top. There are mm-hmm. other, you know, there are other teams that are that are developing into, um, into winners. And I don't even know if the Wood Brothers run a full schedule. Then they probably they, they did. did. Yeah, yeah, they did at that time. Yeah, but they had fallen from yeah. maybe a top tier team to maybe a B team. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you guys went to Michigan, a track that's all power, all motor. And beat the the team that yeah. was all power, all motor. Yeah. So Robert Yates Ford um, battling, you know, side by side, door banging all the way down the front straightaway. Yeah, um, you know how I guess how rewarding was that after yeah. all the grind and all the yeah, yeah. So the grind even was to that point of so we're back. So I, I said you know so I drove for Kale there in '89, but the Hardy sponsorship went away. So in 1990, I was left. I was out of the Cup Series again. I yeah. I had nothing. Uh, my Bush team I, that I was still running. So I'd set up again to to run the full schedule in 1990 and was doing that until in the, the Bush the, car. Yes, yeah. in my Bush car. And this is the Crunch car. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Nestle Crunch. Yes, which was a favorite because we always had candy and ice oh, cream, man. and everybody, everybody yeah. came by. There everybody. was a yeah, there was I a remember, crowd around our truck. In I, our would, I went over there plenty. <laughs> I would think that's uh, where you knew you made it in yeah. the sport was when you get the Nestle Crunch. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was pretty cool to have that, and and so uh, so that was fun. Yeah, you know, we had good sponsorship, and and so you know what a little success I'd had had kind of helped bring those sponsorships to my team, and and so that was nice. 
then Neil Bonnet gets injured in the Wood Brothers car in 1990 at Darlington. Yep. Uh, late in the race, uh, they have an accident, uh, and uh, he gets a concussion, and so they don't know how long he's going to be out or anything. There's Eddie Wood, uh, good friends, obviously grew up with, with that family, uh, with Eddie and Lynn uh, around the racetrack. And uh, they, so the next race was going to be Bristol. And they said, look, we don't know if this is a one-race deal, maybe two and maybe five. You know, we expect Neil to be back sometime, but don't know how long it may be. Are you up? I'm like, yeah, sure. And so the first race at Bristol, I, I mean, I got to go. You're talking about a favorite place and, and to be able to drive their car. And, and uh, you know, they – they ran something a little different. They ran a double shock on the right front uh, there, something I'd never done. So I incorporated that into my my uh, Bush Grand National car, and I actually ended up going back in the fall and winning the, the <laughs> fall race. because. And I put it all on that, that yeah. they taught me that. And, mm. and, uh, and, and it wasn't just the double shock. It was that other shock, what it was, that something that it did. And, you know, they explained it to me. But anyway, that was cool. So I get to drive. So as it turns out, this turns into a full-time deal. Neil Bonnet's not able to come come back and uh, uh larry Britton with sitco i can never forget when he came to me at talladega he used to race there for the second race in july and and so he literally brings a contract out to me uh and uh this was the biggest contract i'd ever seen to, to sign for uh to drive for sitco and keep driving for the wood brothers to drive for the next year and they were gonna they were gonna pay me a hundred thousand dollars and i'd not seen a hundred thousand yeah. dollar contract you know and so i obviously i said yes and so then we move on to to 91 and this race with michigan the week before we had run at pocono and you know, Leonard Wood was so good, but we were down on power, and I'd pass cars through the tunnel turn and third turn, and they'd blow back by me going down the front straightaway, and we had such a good handling car. But but we were getting these new cylinder heads that Robert Yates had designed for Ford Motor Company. We were going to have them at Michigan for the first time the next week. And uh, so, so Davey was just – whipping everybody with this horsepower uh, everywhere. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Uh, and, and so we put this on. We qualified good. We ran good in the race. But then late in the race, we'd put on a set of tires, and it was the best my car had been. And, uh, but Davey was still the class of the field. Uh, so I'm coming down Pitt Road, and Eddie Woods still talking to me, and he's like, look, I think we need to just get gas and get up front and see what we might can do. We can maybe get a top two or three finish out of this because we, we had less than 10 laps to go. And so I said, yep, yeah, sure. And so we just, where others put tires on, we just put gas in the Sitco Ford and motored back out, and I was the leader of the race. And even though I spun my tires uh, getting up to speed, still had enough to get out front and then race Davey. And uh, we had a great battle for the last two laps side by side. And my car is sideways off of two. I thought I was going to wreck both of us, which would have been a really bad thing. But to, to beat <laughs> Davey Allison, uh, I won by like 8, 12 inches, something yeah. like that. And, uh, you know, to do the things that I'd watch your dad and others do coming off a of turn four, I'd stayed with him. I got over close to him, slowed him down just enough, and then drove down the hill and, and got away just enough to, to win the race. But to beat Davey, uh, to, for the first time to have those cylinder heads, which were Robert Yates, and, and, uh, and, and to win the race there. Uh, you talk about becoming a favorite place. Michigan was somewhere then sure. after I won that race. I'd always liked it, but then it became a favorite of mine and, and won a number of races after that there. Right. So how did that change your life winning your first cup race? Oh, Gosh, I mean, you know, it's a different feel when you walk into the garage area. Then, you know, you you've beat these guys. Uh, you know, you you've you finally shown. You know, all I'd heard was the word potential. You know, and, and you have that, and you have that in your mind, and and you know, as a driver, 
you think that you can win, but until you do, you know, then everybody else doesn't know. And so to win in that fashion, that it shows a couple of things to me. Uh, when I see people now that, that win in difficult situations, you know, when somebody takes a car that maybe shouldn't win a race and you go win a race because the driver does his job, then, then that's somebody that I want to pay attention to. Yeah. And I felt like I had done that and people respected that. And then that's when conversations then came, had, had actually started about three weeks before I won that race. Um, with Joe Gibbs coming along, but right. I was very happy at the Wood Brothers. But, um, but so these, so conversations were happening from other teams. And then, so I win that, then conversations start to ramp up. And right. so opportunities start coming my way instead of me having to go try to find Chase sponsorship to take, you know, somewhere and, and being there when someone gets injured. Now all of a sudden, uh, people are willing to either start a race team and, use me to, to start that or uh, opportunities with good race teams that are there to, to go do that. I was really young back when this all was going on. So my, my vision or my, my perception of it might be skewed. But for me, I was thinking, why is Dale Jarrett going to drive for this new team that has no foundation and no history? And he's just one and he's yeah. leaving – a team with all the history, mm-hmm. and you talk about taking risks and yep. betting on yourself. Yep. What did you see in that opportunity with Joe Gibbs that made you convinced that this was the move for you? Well, there were a couple of things there, and um, that that was as far as making a decision. Uh, certainly, one of the two hardest decisions in, in my professional career to to make to to leave the Wood Brothers, who had given me this. I mean. Without the Wood Brothers, without Eddie Wood making that call in 1990 to put me in that car, I, I don't know where my career would have gone, you know, how it would evolve. I was going to keep trying, but without – so I, if you look back and say we all owe someone for something along the way, the, the, the Wood Brothers are those people for me. I mean, I fought and I battled along the way in, in a lot of different ways, but without that chance, that second chance of getting back into the Cup Series – you know, they, we wouldn't be – We I don't know that we'd be sitting there, you know, and I'm fortunate enough to, to have won a championship and, and then so very blessed and fortunate to be uh, nominated and elected into the Hall of Fame I, you know, without that. So how do you – how am I – why am I thinking that I might even go with a football coach that's starting a race team uh, for the first time and he's going to get all of this equipment from Rick Hendrick so somebody you're going to be competing against, you know you're not getting the best stuff that they have. Why would why would you do this? But the, Joe Gibbs is a very persuasive person, <laughs> and um, you know he he's successful at whatever he does. And I've told people this. I, I knew from my first meeting and talk with him. I, I remember the first time that he called was after the Dover race in June. Um, and I, I laughed because I thought it was one of my friends playing a joke on me. It's because I'd gotten home from from Dover and. And he said it was Joe Gibbs, and so I started laughing. And he said, "No, this, this I'd met him in in Talladega earlier that year." Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, we had these meetings and and started talking about it. And so he had this sponsorship from Interstate Battery. So I met Norman Tommy Miller from there. They seemed to have a great plan. And and I remember in talking to my wife Kelly and talking to my dad, uh, they were like, you know, and Kelly had become such good friends. Uh, with everyone uh, within the the Wood Brothers organization, that entire family, Carol and Nancy and and everybody there, and and they, they were such special friends and still are to this day. 
uh, and, and she was probably having a harder time with the decision I was about to make than, than even I was. Um, but I told her, I said, this, this is, uh, these were my words. I said, I see this, and, and it goes back to what you had talked about, the Wood Brothers. We won this race, and we ran good in, in a number of other races, but it wasn't what I considered, you know, that they weren't the, the Wood Brothers of old, that top A team. And um, I, I, even though we're, this is a brand-new team that was going to start out, I said, this is my chance to win the Daytona 500 because of the Hendrick stuff ah, yeah. and stuff like that. And so uh, I said, I'm going to make the move. And and once again, it was more money once again. So, you know, that factored in. Here while I was getting a contract that was, uh, you know, double of what I was making. And so it just seemed like the the right thing to do uh, at that time. And I was willing. My, my, my life has been uh, – I, I still look at it every day. My life has, has been chance and, and a gamble and, and – you know, taking chances on myself. And I felt like that I had done everything to say this is my best opportunity to move forward. But what did he say? What did he say? You said he was persuasive. Yeah. Did he say I'm, you're going to win the Daytona 500 no. if you come here? No. No. Here's what he said. He said, here's what we have. He said, I have a sponsor. He said, and I have a deal with Rick Hendrick. And so we're going to get cars and engines from them. He said – I'm going to allow you to pick your crew chief, who you want to run and, and start this organization. And so I was immediately, once it got to that point, uh, yet Jimmy Makar, my brother-in-law, is, uh, is who I wanted to do that. He was working for Rusty Wallace and Blue Max Racing at the time. And, um, uh, but he said, you know, you're going to get, he said, we're going to do this in a different way. But he, So it, it wasn't <laughs> anything reassuring because he said, he said, I've gone and basically this is – I'm not just throwing these numbers out. He's, I think Joe has told this story a number of times. But he had $850,000 they had borrowed to do this. Now, we didn't have – you know, didn't have an engine shop or any of that because getting all of that from Hendrick. But, you know, he said – he said, I promise – he said, I know people. He said, we're going to get the best people here. He said, it may take us a little while to, to build this into the winning organization you want. He said, but I'm going to do that. He said, but – he said, I'm not borrowing more than this $850,000. If things happen and things don't go our way and we run through that, he said, I'm not borrowing more money than that. So <laughs> was that reassuring? No. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but he, you know, obviously Joe is a very religious man and in his beliefs and uh, he's very persuasive in, in that manner. Uh, he helped change my life in, in a very positive way, in the way that I went about life and looking at things uh, for myself and my entire family. And um, uh, I just believed that Joe Gibbs was going to be successful, and I wanted to be a part of that. I mean, he was a winning football coach, not because he was better at X's and O's than, than everybody mm -hmm. else out there. It's because he was better at recognizing talent and, and getting the best people around him, from the players to the coaches and the people that understood his program. And that's what he's done at Joe Gibbs Racing, and it's one of the most successful in that now. Yeah. So went into Daytona 500. How does that change your life? Everybody says <laughs> it changes your life. How did it change Dale Jarrett's life? Um, it does change your life. I mean, you're you're a Daytona 500 champion, as you well know, from Ed, Ed, and that's how you're known the rest of your life. But at the immediate time, so this was our second year. Um, I you know, know the yeah. first Daytona 500 didn't go so well. Uh, it was going great. I'd quali we qualified well, so I'm back in 92 here yeah. before I get to the Daytona 500. <laughs> we qualify well. So it's, this kind of goes to that 850000 that he wasn't going to borrow more money. Um, so 
I spin out. I'm, I'm racing up front in the qualifying race, uh, but I get loose, tear up a car, so we have to go to a backup car and start last in the field, uh, but we had qualified good enough so we could start, even though we had no points or anything that we are on, uh, go to the back of the field, uh, drive all the way up into the front, and I'm battling uh, Sterling Marlin, uh, Davey Allison, Ernie Irvin uh, for the lead. And uh, Ernie actually, I was running, I was running fourth, and Ernie makes a move, and, and it creates an, an, an accident. Yeah, on the back straightaway. On the back straightaway. Yeah, he, got, he, got, yeah. he got ran over for that one. Yeah. In yeah. the press. And that I got, so I got turned. I thought I was through it, and I got clipped in the right rear. And so it sent me head on into the wall in the back stretch, and I just kind of slid down the track. And thinking everything was kind of going to be okay, but obviously there's smoke and you can't, you know. Anyway, Ken Schrader, I find then things were almost to a quiet thing. And then all of a sudden I got hit in the right door. I mean, it pushed the frame rail over to the, the transmission yeah. uh, that got hit so hard. That, I mean, it was, and it wasn't Schrader's fault. He just thought he had an opening too. He didn't realize there was a car on the other side of that smoke that he couldn't see through there. So I tore, we tore up two cars. I'm thinking, hmm. It's 850000 might not go too far. This might have been a bad decision. But we had run really good. And then we had some bad, we had some good races in 92. Uh, battled Alan Colwicki at Bristol uh, for, for a race win, finished second to him there. So, you know, a lot of good things happened. So, but 93, we went, had a great test, uh, everything. We pull into, uh, or, or when I get to the garage area for the Daytona 500, I told my wife Kelly that um, I came back from our – we used to test twice at Daytona, you know, and, and uh, I came back from the one in January, and I said, we've got a really good car. I said, I'm going to win the Daytona 500. Mm. And uh, this what that's – I'm not I'm, – I'm pretty – I've always been pretty confident in my ability and myself, and I might be really, really cocky on the inside, but I don't generally show that on the outside. But didn't tell it to a lot of people, but I told her and I told my dad. I said, I'm going to win – this race yeah. and uh we anyway we get to the garage area and we happen to be in garage stall 11 and obviously 11 was my dad's yeah. number that's always a good number for me i'm like oh yeah this is lining up good. <laughs> this is so qualify on the front row with kyle petty sat on the pole and uh we had a fast car all day and uh it, it was just unbelievable but get down to the end and there was this rookie that was in my way named Jeff Gordon that uh, I was trying to get by to get to your dad who was leading the race. But he had taken two tires, I believe, and uh, I took four. Jimmy Maycar called four tires, and I knew my car had outhandled everybody all day. And uh, so I, I finally put a move on Gordon and get by him, and uh, I knew your dad's car was so loose. I said, if I can just get to the back bumper, I can get him loose enough. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there, but anyway, yeah. fortunately, we, I only had to worry about that for a lap. So you got by Gordon with how many to go? Uh, three to go, I believe. Okay. Yeah, three to go. And so then I got behind Dale. And so then we, uh, as as we're coming to get the white flag, go away into turn three, I'd got a good enough run to get really close to Dale uh, going into three. And he was he just had his hands full. I mean, he was turning right going into the corner. Yeah. and uh, But nobody else could have driven that car and finished <laughs> 20th with it um, they had to tore it up before then but he's leading the race still driving this thing of course at this time he hadn't won the daytona 500 right he had you know things had happened and he didn't and they'd kept him from winning but uh anyway uh get there and he's he can't he literally can't turn so i got close enough to push him into the corner a little faster than he had been and he went up the track and i went underneath and then jeff bodine followed me uh i think he was driving the 15 car at that mm -hmm. time and then uh he followed me and pushed me by and so i literally led that last lap and uh 
I, I think I'd led before then, uh, earlier in the race, but uh, uh, got by and, and then just blocked. And, uh, you know, it's just a good call, good pit call, and, and having the best handling car. And then, yes, it changes your life. I mean, opportunities, I mean, we, we knew that some things might come away, but, you know, you know, personal services still started coming along and more sponsorship for Joe Gibbs Racing, and it, it just changes, you know. And, and we went on to, to finish fourth that year uh, in the points. I think your dad won the, the championship that year. Yeah. But, uh, you, know, we'd ne- you know, here's a second-year team that we ran in the top five in, in the points and didn't win another race that year, but, but we battled hard. So the deal with and, – and so the team's coming along, things are working out. And then y'all sort of hit a rough patch. Yeah, y'all had a down year. How does how to tr- talk me through that and the opportunity to work with Robert? Mm-hmm. And I know there's a little bit of a cool story there about how y'all agreed to the relationship down in t- Darlington, South Carolina. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So as good as '93 was, '94 started out and wasn't uh, that good. And I'd actually signed an extension uh, with Joe Gibbs Racing. Um, uh, Joe wanted to go on because my, my original deal was for three years, so 94 was going to be the last year. He wanted to get that out of the way. So I signed a couple years extension, which was nice. I'd never had this kind of security in my life, and here I am about to mess all of that up uh, or turn it around anyway uh, as far as job security. And and so we 94, we just couldn't do anything. Uh, uh, there, there were a number of things that I look at um, uh, – in some things that we were doing, other things that we weren't doing and following along with, with some things that shock-wise that people were doing. And so we just weren't performing. We actually missed the race in North Wilkesboro uh, in the fall. And it, so, so, yeah, it was that bad. I missed it by a thousandth of a second. Yeah. But still, shouldn't even been in that position right. when you talk about it, you know. Yeah. But you, so you missed the race. And, and um, so we were – it was so down to – I mean, to sit home on that Sunday and watch – you know, Ooh, it was imagine. the first time, only time either. it ever happened for me until, you know, the very end of my career. And um, so it was just a terrible film. We come back and win Charlotte the next week. Whoa. Win Charlotte. You yeah. missed the race. Missed the race at Wilkesboro and come back and win Charlotte, uh, the fall race. And um, I, I can remember Joe Gibbs being in. But by this time, uh, the decision had been made uh, uh, as to what I was going to do. So Ernie Irvin gets injured uh, in August uh, of 1990 four uh in practice crash and uh so i had gotten uh uh a call from from robert yates i didn't even you know i, I knew robert and stuff uh, going through everything but you know, he just was asking about you know contracts at that time everybody didn't know i don't even know that we you know it may have been talked about that i'd signed an extension with joe gibbs but you know it wasn't a huge story and right. everything you didn't have a press conference yeah, no and, and so Robert didn't even know what my deal was, so he was just inquiring as as they were looking because they knew Ernie wasn't going to be back for 1995, and so they were looking for something. So at this time, still got my Bush team that I'm running. I'm running a lot of races with that, and and uh, we've got sponsorships and and things. Uh, things are are lining up well there, and and um, but Robert talked to me, and gosh, you know, when when you get a, I've always believed that things come along at times. For you to make decisions in your life and opportunities are there and they come along for a reason and there were plenty of other drivers out there for robert yates to look at and talk to but here he was calling me to see what my thoughts might would be so our discussions at first it was just you know it was intriguing and it was nice that i'd done that and 
and, and Dale, I'm sure you had conversations with Robert. You can have a 45-minute conversation, and you go back and think about it. There were only about two and a half minutes of that because you've talked about everything from 1960 uh, all the way to the <laughs> yeah. present time with Robert. And uh, so <laughs> trying to get out of it exactly what he was looking for. So the gist of it was that he needed a driver for 1995. There was nothing beyond 1995 oh, no. whatsoever. Really? Yes. There was nothing. There were no guarantees. But here was the thing as we sat at Darlington and talked about what we might do is that I had always had in my mind that starting my own moving, taking my Bush Grand National team and making it a cup team and me owning it because I can do things better than everybody else in my mind. <laughs> and uh, so this would be might be my chance. So Robert is like, look, I can I'll supply your engines. I'll help you get sponsorship. If if this is just a one-year deal, they didn't know, you know, if Ernie's not able to come back, then it could go on and be for a couple of more years. Of yeah. course, this is the Texaco Havland days. And, um, you know, Robert Yates Racing had been through a lot of difficult times there with, with Davey, and, you know, they just missed out on the championship in 92, and then Davey's helicopter crash and losing him, and then they have this happen. You know, they're having success with Ernie, and then all of a sudden this happens with Ernie. So, you know, they I mean, it's, they're an emotional wreck over there, yeah. and it's tough, and it's understandable why they're even still going sometimes. You didn't even know why that was. But anyway, he, he's – He's willing to offer me this, and, and I'm thinking, you know, why is this being put in front of me? I've got a stable situation. I've got my brother-in-law that I've brought over here to Joe Gibbs Racing, and, and Jimmy's done a phenomenal job of putting Joe Gibbs Racing together and making everything work. We've had moderate success, and, and um, you know, I know that if I make this move that I'm even considering that things around thanksgiving and christmas at the jared household might not be too good you know i'm getting ready to upset my family in a lot of ways and um but this once again i look at this as a chance to for things to happen Mm -hmm. in big ways and so robert and i came to an agreement uh but before we could make that happen there had to be a buyout of my contract at joe gibbs racing uh, Ford Motor Company stepped up and and helped make that happen. I mean, I can remember the day that that I got the call from the from Edsel Ford and saying that they were were going to make this happen. I was in a hotel room and, and uh, for the next race, and they were saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna step up, we're gonna make this happen. And so they, you know, put it and made it all happen. Uh, and yes, indeed, Thanksgiving in, in 1994 and Christmas. Uh, was a lot more quiet other than, you know, we allowed our kids. But we, we generally are a racing family, and we talk racing a lot. And, uh, but, you know, there wasn't a lot said about racing uh, that year or about that. But, yeah. So I decided to make this move. I, I looked at it as this is the opportunity. Whatever happens, I've got to make the most of it. And, uh, whoo, this almost totally backfired on me uh, because we did not have – I sat on the pole – for the Daytona 500, which I had never won a pole for in 1995 with Robert Yates Racing, but things didn't go well. That Robert Yates Racing was still a top tier team, but they were going through a lot of things uh, in trying to figure things out. And we we didn't run well in a lot of races. Uh, and you you suffered a lot of the the blunt of that. Yeah, in the media. Yes, and took it personal. Yeah, it frustrated you. It did. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I knew I was doing everything that Why? I could do as a driver. Yeah, well, because well, they had so, had success with Davey, and so then Ernie steps in, and Ernie has success. And, and Ernie Irvin's a phenomenal race driver, you know. And but, but there were things that were starting to change, and because of the success they had, 
Larry McReynolds had notes from all the way back to when he started there, and they were still running a lot of that. And a lot of people had started to change. And, and you know, I'm not just saying this to cover my tail as a driver, but, you know, we had to start moving forward with some things. And here we are still trying to run things that Davey had won with and things mm. that Ernie had won with. And, and I'm a different driver, and uh, we needed to make changes. What they weren't willing, they were slow to react to things that I would tell them about the car. And um, to the point that they put Hut Strickland in the car at a practice session for the Coca Cola 600. Uh, I agreed to it. I said, Go yeah. ahead. You know, I, wow. I've got nothing to lose. You know, he's not going to really? go run faster than what I'm running in this car. And he came back in and said, I don't know how he hasn't wrecked this car. And Really? Uh, yes. Oh, so, so you were looking that, for that somebody started, to validate your points there. I said, but. hey, yeah. if he does then, I realize that if he goes and does run better and says, this, hey, there's nothing wrong with this car, then then I've got to work on myself. And okay. That's I've got enough confidence to think that even though I've been beat down to this point um, pretty hard, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still saying I know how to drive these race cars. And I'm winning some races in my Bush car. So it's not like that I can't drive a car. Right. And uh, uh, so finally we start making some changes, and uh, then we go to Pocono and win Pocono. And uh, that helped tremendously. Uh, and, and even that morning, the, the, that race morning, we did something they had really never done. We put a rear sway bar on the car at Pocono. We had, we had practiced with it a couple of times, but Larry McReynolds wasn't really in favor of it, but decided to do it. And we outhandled everybody that day. And so – Finally, something that I wanted to do uh, because I'd done it with not with my bush car there, but I'd done it at other places, and so this was something I was had been experimenting with, familiar with. Then we go to the brickyard and have a great race of the year. Your dad won the the brickyard, yeah. but I ran he and Rusty Wallace down, but running those two down and passing them is a different thing. Sure. But uh, uh, so I finished third there, so things started to turn around and and got a little bit better. And then it was you know from that point it was like okay, Ernie's coming back. You know what's what's going to happen, and, and even to that point of that very Brickyard 400, Robert Yates is driving because Robert always had to drive when we went somewhere. Uh, but he uh, he's driving myself and Kelly uh, to we're going to a Texaco Havlin function, and he's telling me Ford's wanting Robert to start a second team, and me to be the driver of this second team. But Robert's not he and he his words that night in that car were, "Look, this is hard enough." And when they build two victory lanes, because <laughs> my car's finished one and two, I want both of them in a victory lane. Yeah, he said, but they're not going to do that, obviously. He's yeah. making a joke. But he said, when victory lane's big enough for two cars, then I'll consider this. So even at that time, he was, he was dead set against starting that second Dang. team. Uh, but fortunately, uh, he changed his tune within the next couple of weeks after that, and things came around. So I was already to the point, though, that I was talking – thinking that Ernie's coming back, Robert's not going to start a second team, my Bush team is now going to be my team, Robert's going to provide the motors for me for X number of years. Uh, he, there was also some financial deal. So I literally, I go to Bristol in August with a contract. I had sat down on Wednesday before that with the people from Hooters uh, and had a three-year <laughs> contract and in my hand. Really? Yes. So I'm going to, I'm going to switch my team over. To, to my race team, my cup team, and uh, I have this three-year deal. Now, the downside of it is is that here we are, Kelly and I, and we have this family and two little girls because Jason's grown up, and so we've got these two little girls, and then Zach has just been born, and 
uh, here I'm going to be making 30 appearances at Hooters. Right. It's not exactly the, <laughs> the family-type sponsorship she was looking for. Uh, but she understood, you know, what I had talked about doing, what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, this was my opportunity to to live out my dream of, of having my cup team. And, That's what uh, you wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that all changed in a matter of walking across the track in Bristol before they had the tunnel there. But I walked across, and they said, Robert wants to see you. And uh, and I'm like, okay, I'll see him in a little. And they said, no, no, he needs to see you right now. So little did I know. I knew he that Ford had put some pressure on Robert, and he he agreed with them to start this second team, which would become the '88 team. And uh, but his next thing was is is getting me to back off of starting of moving my team and this sponsorship. And I I had the contract in my hand when he called me into the trailer. To talk about that's that. interesting because wasn't that part of the original promise or not promise but wasn't that originally what he said to you to lure you over to yates from Gibbs? It, yeah was yeah. that your opportunity yeah, to go cup to with your, yeah, your team yeah so now he's wanting me to put that on hold Ooh. because he wants to start this wow. second team uh because he needs to start this second team what and, was the reason for the pressure to start a second team do you recall um, well, Ford needed that. It, you know, this was starting to become more prevalent. That that clearly Chevrolet Hendrick. Or yeah, so. yeah. So they so and and financially, it would make more sense. You know, because Robert Yates Racing. When I went there, there were thirty six employees, counting the ladies that worked in the front office. Yeah. Mm. And so he was wanting you know, as he as had more success and wanting to grow. You know, and get more people and better people. The the way to do that is with with two teams to where you can grow this, uh, but financially. You know, it, it looked even better on the books too because Ford was behind this. You know, yeah, Ford was. You know, this was a total Ford team with with Ford credit yeah. and, and Ford quality care. Yeah. So you know, that was their their deal to to make happen, and so they finally convinced him that that was the thing. And the next thing was for him to convince me that that I would be the driver and that I would put you know my thoughts and say. And I mean, I showed him the the contract. I mean. Could we have taken that Hooters and and done it with it? But Ford didn't want that. They had their whole deal that that they wanted already. So and here I had a, another decision to make. Yeah, the Hooters deal went to where did the Hooters deal go? Ah, oh, good it, question. Did it I don't go? Uh, oh well, well, what year was this? That was uh, ninety five and ninety five. So that yeah, was after Roy Allen and all that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's it didn't go anywhere. I don't know. There. I don't think it really yeah. did go anywhere within right. Uh, top I think, three series. I don't yeah, think, I think anybody. They, yeah, I yeah. think it was a couple of years later before they decided because I think when I went back and said, you know, I appreciate this, but no, they they kind of had their mindset that this was what was going to happen yeah. because I mean we left my uh, my race shop that day thinking that I, there deal. was nothing I needed a little bit more money, but I had a couple of other associate sponsors that that were there and and you know with the deal that I had with Robert for providing the engines, you know yeah. this this was going to work. This was going to be a, a really good deal to start a cup team yeah. with. And, uh, you know, that was my whole mindset. And then, gosh, then making that decision, was I going to start? Because everybody – then the whole talk was, okay, so they're going to start this second team where they're going to be getting all the hand-me-down stuff because Ernie's still going to get – you know, the 28 car, that was Robert Yates Racing. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. From day one to the end of it, they, the 28 yeah. was that. You know, that's where it was started, formed, everything. And so – so then we announced Todd Parrott was going to be the crew chief, which he had never been in that position. And they was like, "Well, you know, they're just that's just going to be the hand me down stuff." They're going, and we did get hand me down stuff. But Todd Parrott made that hand me down stuff pretty good. But you know, we immediately went ninety six. So I make that decision that that's what I'm going to do, and we go win the Bush Clash, which I'd never been in before. Uh, 
but I had this rocket ship of a car, and and uh, it's crazy. I mean, I passed like 15 cars in the first lap. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, went on and won that, and then we turn around uh, next week and win the Daytona 500 uh, with this brand-new race team. Right. So off and running. Y'all are so good in that race. Or that whole week, right? Every oh, time, that was amazing. Yeah. Anytime yeah. they went, anytime the they 88 went to Daytona. <laughs> oh, I, God, I, so I, I, I don't remember what year it was, but the, the, I mean, didn't you guys have like a practice crash or something? And I remember that, that like they opened the, you know, the that team. That was 2000. Sh- yeah. Was that 2000? Yeah. And, and they go in there, and was that a backup car that you – No, no. They, they no. just went and repaired yeah, whatever it yeah. was? It that, was very end of practice. And yeah, they, they w- we made a change, and we wanted to get back out in the pack. So I was literally getting ready to come in. Uh, was going to run and then get a plug check down the back stretch. And so I was behind Gordon. We'd sat on the pole. So this is a year after we win the championship, and we come back, we'd sat on the pole at another rocket ship, uh, and so this thing was so fast. But anyway, go down into turn one, somebody in front of Gordon runs off the track, gets their left front off the track, and Gordon checks up. I check up, but I get hit in the back, which knocks me into Gordon, and then I slide down off. I never spun out. But I just when I went off the banking onto the apron, it tore up the left front fender. And That's stuff. right. And okay. so we called. We got our guys. They had made templates off of all of this car, all the, especially the front of the car. And uh, they flew them down and they let them work That's a little right. bit at night. And then they came in at like four thirty the next morning and repaired that car so I could start on the pole with it. And not just because just starting on the pole, but because it was the baddest car around. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, then we went on and won that race. So it was you talking about as a competitor, a driver. I mean, you win the championship, and you come back and you sit on the pole for the Daytona 500, and you win the Daytona 500. It's like, oh God, could this get any easier? I didn't. You, know, you don't really <laughs> think that, but it, it seemed like that it was. You know, things were so good that it almost seemed easy. Yeah. Well, that's a great. I think that's a great place for us oh. to 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 end the conversation. There's a lot more about mine and your relationship. There's a lot there with the uh, with the broadcasting, and there's some experiences that we went through. Uh, that we'd love to have you back. Oh on the yeah, show to talk oh, about. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's fascinating to me as I when you talk about this, and I've thought about this many times. It's just all the things through the history for us seventy years of of our family sure. uh, being there, and just incredible yeah. story in my mind. But I wanted to know, I wanted to know a lot more about sort of the part of your life that I didn't get to experience yeah. or witness, and 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 how it all started. I know you had a real hard grind to to get your opportunities and thanks for coming out here absolutely sharing it with us love working with you love seeing you every weekend and um you've been a great friend so phenomenal thank you appreciate the opportunity yeah fun to relive absolutely hiring is a challenge but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple fast and smart a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. That's nice. Yeah, as long as that is your specific job. Don't be applying for my job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we need other jobs. Yeah. It seems like this is, uh, this is the way to go. As applicants come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates, and you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Mm. Get low. That's quick. 
And now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. D-A-L-E-J-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It is time for the Valvoline DIY question of the week, Dale Jr. Nothing more DIY, especially in your case, than, you know what? Cooking. I know that you uh you become uh you come get into this stuff. So what is your go-to dish or or meal or whatever it is that you cook when it's uh when you're on your own or when you're doing it yourself? Well, I mean, I've always enjoyed cooking. Um not I can't cook a ton of stuff, but so you know, when me and Amy first started dating, I was like, You wait till I make some French toast because I like making French toast and um there's a bit of an art to it keeping keeping it from getting soggy in the middle. And there's a lot of ways to do it. I would, uh, back when we raced in South Carolina, we would always go to the Huddle House instead of the Waffle House. Mm. Oh, really? Kind of, Interesting you know, decision. I know, because I love Waffle House, yeah. and that's that's my go-to. I, there's not even any Huddle Houses around here in North Carolina, but there were in South Carolina, and the Huddle House had the French toast. And they do. Waffle oh. House doesn't. I know about that. And yeah. so I would go to the Huddle House after the race, and eat there. There was a car on the racetrack too, sponsored by Huddle House, uh, which you know made you want to go to support that. But anyway, I half I kind of half heartedly uh, hate admitting that because I'm you did yeah. you you were you just eased on in. But anyway, one. so I loved <laughs> making French toast, and I love eating it. I don't eat a ton of it these days, but um, still think I could probably cook a pretty decent French toast. Liver mush. Oh, I'm, I know I'm catch hell for that. My yeah. wife hates it. Um, Ricky Stenhouse, big liver mush fan. Me and him talk about liver mush. That's you were a big we liver mush guy. Yeah. I, I, I like. I like. I never it. even heard of it until right. you brought it. Slice up. it thin, crispy, burn it. The, put the put it on mustard on. and bread sandwich. Okay. Liver mush sandwich, mustard, lots of mustard. Okay. Or I just eat it on a plate by itself with lots of mustard and skip the bread. Sounds awful. What's but the keep secret? Going. To the I know. Toaster. Come on. What's oh, just when you well you when you mix the eggs and milk, uh, you don't put it in there a lot it just needs to go it just needs to sort of coat the outside if you leave it in there even for a second too long it soaks into the bread and then the bread doesn't cook all the way through you get a little bit of sogginess in the center got it don't dunk it no just just it's just to go it just needs to coat the outside because you want it to still have be a bread you know not a not a mush in the middle you like your French toast? You look like somebody that dunks your French toast. I, I, I leave it in there a little extra. And I, <laughs> I use challah bread. That's yeah. my secret right there. Gotcha. Oh. Yeah, they're different. There's different breads. Oh, yeah. Make a big difference. Bread, yeah. And other things I cook. I, you know, obviously I, on my, on my uh, Twitter bio and, and, and Instagram bio, I talk about barbecue. Uh, over, over the last probably five years or maybe even more than that, I got in interest in trying to smoke uh, barbecue and, and, I think I liked it. I wanted to do it because it's such a time-consuming and the preparation is, takes days. Like you, you got to get this where you buy the meat, the kind of meat you buy, and then spending a day or two sort of prepping the meat and brining it and and you know marinating it, injecting it, and all the things that you do can do. Uh, making your own rubs and sauces and all that stuff, building and pre- preparing and setting up the grill, setting this temperature and. Uh, I, you know, all of it really reminded me of preparing my car during the week to go to the racetrack. Mm. When I raced late models, you know, you spent 
all week tinkering and playing, cleaning up the hauler, getting the truck serviced full of gas and cleaning out the trash and cleaning up the interior of the truck and then reorganizing the hauler and the trailer and all your stuff and getting your driver's suit ready and all that. It's just, you know, you're just playing, piddling. But that's what barbecue is. And then you get to feed a bunch of people with it. And then when you have leftovers, you get to take leftovers up and down the road to your friends and, and relatives, which is fun. They love it. You walk in with a, hey, man, I got a, a bunch of brisket left over here. Eat on this for a couple of days. And, it, and especially when they eat it and they like it. And then you got, it's not just brisket. It's ribs and, and pork butt. And all, there's all kinds of different types of ribs. You know, and there's, there's just so many different variations and ways to do it. And you play and tinker and twist on things and tweak this and that and the other and uh, cook at different temperatures for different reasons. I just kind of like that technology side of it, you know, the, the, the mechanics of it. And uh, so that's kind of what I'm into now when I say cooking. I, I, yeah. What I thought you was going to yeah. say. Yeah, that was yeah. it. But I mean, I'm going to tell you what now, man. I can take a basic cup can of soup. And I can turn that thing into something a little special. That's what I like to do. Huh? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, I grill chicken breasts and then dice it all up, and I keep it for a couple of days. And I put that in uh, soups. Salads, and yeah. Well, if you take just a normal can of soup, like vegetable soup or anything, mm-hmm. and you can put any meat in it, and, and you, can put any, you can put any seasoning and stuff in it. Uh, you can put uh, – you can take uh, – homemade uh, salsa and put that in there if you do a vegetable soup and put homemade salsa in it never tried that and add chicken mm-hmm. grilled chicken more of a fiesta soup yes yeah so okay. i like the i don't that's not really cooking because uh, no. you're not making well, the cooking it's doctoring it's doctoring cooking's kind of making things from scratch my wife is an amazing cook i mean amazing she's she can look on pinterest and get a recipe make it that night and it's great and we do she knows i love buffalo so she incorporates that into a lot of stuff that we eat so she I is like good. It. I remember when she cooked for us all in Pocono. Remember that? Do you remember when we all stayed in that yeah, house? Yeah. And she Boy, just, man, man we came home days. from the track. And, man, she had that meal. I mean, she had everything. Yep. There was all kinds of stuff. It was awesome. Yeah. That smoking thing is my bucket list. That's my bucket list, like one of my biggest things well, on there. Well, uh, you know, I'm no pro. I'm actually maybe the guy that give you the give you the knowledge you need because I'm a novice as well. Get a Traeger. That's what you told pellet me. Pellet grill. Yeah. Start there. The hardest part about smoking is controlling the temperature, and especially on a windy day or anything like that. Um, and if you're out there and that thing's smoking for eight hours and it loses, you know, temperature, it kills it. You're o- it's game over. And so, hmm. or it goes too high. Whatever mm-hmm. you know, you could ruin. It could be ruined, and then you're like, why? Why did that happen? I don't even know why that happened. You know, yeah. um, because there's you know, if you're doing this by yourself. Get a pellet grill that controls the tent for you. That way, you don't have to worry about that part, and you can just you understand how to cook the meat. You know, you got a reliable temperature. That's no, there's you can take that out of the equation, and then you just cook the meat, and then you can play with your recipe. You can try different injections, and you can see what tastes good, right? And then once you get that down, and you really want to make it hard, get a grill that you have to control the temperature, and then you're become a freaking <laughs> professional. Barbecue, there you go. Which I don't, I don't want to go that far. I mean, I'd love to have a trailer with all that crap on it, oh. like those guys have. Yeah. Those guys are in a league of their own. It's just a little They're, bit. Yeah. yeah, you gotta, you gotta have to have a, I, they, you gotta have to have a guy. You know that all he does is the temp on the grill. Holy crap! I got kids, man. We yeah. ain't got time for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. 
All right, listen, thank you to Valvoline for the segment. From high mileage rides that need that thick anti-wear film to newer engines that have carbon buildup, head over to Valvoline.com slash Dale. That's Valvoline.com slash Dale to find the product spec for your engine. Keep coming, bud. White flag, bud. White White flag right there. White flag. White flag. We'll start off with a few Apple Podcast ratings and reviews. Uh, Dolan J wrote, Dale, I love listening to your podcast. I can't help but wonder, though. Why is the pitch in your voice much higher on the broadcast when you're than when you're talking on the podcast? Why is your pitch? I have noticed this. Have it's you know? And Leah, Leah is nodding her head too. So when you're doing a broadcast for NBC Sports, oh, it's a race. Look at them going to the, the girl. Oh my God, they're going like man, they're driving their wheels off. And in the podcast, we're just we're we're level having sure. a conversation. So, so. It's, it's just got to be the excitement, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Adrenaline. But uh, it, it is the adrenaline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, glad somebody's so there you go. excited there you watching go. a race. I, I mean, yeah, that's a yeah. One, right? I don't know. Hey, if it's hell yeah, I that's the way I'm going to do that. That's uh, that's the way I'm going to do my broadcasting. If if I don't, uh, I broadcast because it's fun and I I want to watch the race and I'm excited about what I'm going to see. I'm going to see some of the best guys in the in in the in this business do it. Yeah, and if that's not the case, then I don't want to do the broadcast. Like if so, if I go up there and I can't be me, yeah, I let, don't want to hear you being like, oh. Let, yeah. Well, I mean, if I ever lost that, then I'd be like, man, this, this is boring. I don't want to do this job. There you go. So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm only doing it. I I don't need the money. I'm I'm good there. I, I'm only doing it because it's a fun job, and I love racing, and I'm excited. So that's a genuine experience for me. There you go. And if that goes away, then I don't know what I'm gonna do. Pee Wee 72, you guys might think this is interesting. Pee Wee 72, after listening to this story about Gary Ballou, <laughs> there are a lot of things he left out. Gary didn't run crews, and he wasn't a boss. He made a deal for a lesser charge. His story should have been about racing. I, I, there's so many things that I... I Did like, that guy read the book? Well, first of all, it's Pee Wee 72. I didn't know if that was just a coincidence or not. But He must be a big fan. Uh, well, you know, Pee Wee, his car was number 72. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, yeah, right. So like, uh, th- th- that super speedway modified yeah. he ran was uh, had owned was one of yeah. the coolest looking cars. Right. In so this guy may be yeah. Yeah. big fan. There's plenty of racing for Gary Ballou. He didn't yeah. leave that part out. Uh, here's another one. I've been I have been hooked to this podcast since day one. Easily the best racing show out there. Keep it up. By the way, Dale, I've even quit smoking since listening to hashtag Thirty Days. Nice. So, uh, that, I thought that was cool. Yeah. yeah, I've seen in my social timeline that a lot of folks are are, are getting that job done. Getting good. I say getting the job done because it's tough. It's, it's hard to quit. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, Dirty Mo Media has another podcast. It's called Door Bumper Clear, hosted by Brett Griffin and TJ Majors. If you're looking for some hot takes, this ought to be a good week. Uh, you know, every, I keep saying that, but these two guys end up in the mix uh, of these races a lot, and then. Uh, TJ, in this case, you had Joey Logano restarting on the front row there to uh, that last restart. I think TJ has something to say about it. So, uh, looking forward to that. I like, did you see Spider Brett's uh, tweet? He had a pretty good one. <laughs> you have to be more Which specific. One? Which right. one? Hold on. I mean, he's currently drinking with Freddie and them right now on vacation. So, the Dirty Mo Media puts out the tweet about the final caution. Uh, you know, when, when that final caution came out as Joey Logano was leading, TJ Majors will discuss today on Door Bumper Clear as he is joined by Kevin Harvick spotter, Tim Fidewa. And so Brett says, ask Tim Fidewa why, why he raced me like a beep Aww. and cost me three seconds and how the best plate spotter ever lost the lead on that final restart. Protect the top, uh-huh. dumb 
<laughs> oh my heavens, Brett. I love well, Brett. listen, this is what these guys bring. I love it. I love that. They, they, yeah, I love it. Um, and they have honest. Yeah, right there. Let's <laughs> let it play out. So uh, everybody that loves the uh, Dale Jr. download, you also would love Door Bumper Clear if you're not listening already. So, And then also, they'll record today, and they'll uh, come out tonight as well. Uh, this podcast can be watched on the Telebox each week. It's on NBC Sports Network at 5 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays. That's 2 p.m. Pacific. All my people out in the Pacific Coast on Pacific time. Uh, with your, that's with your big 2 p.m. trees and your erections. Right, right. They have big, big trees and erections. Uh, and also, you got uh, the Win Dell Jr.'s Ride promotion. That's the thing we do. The Dell Jr. Foundation is raffling off Dell Jr.'s 2019 Corvette Coupe Z06 with a 2LZ package. Tickets are going fast. It's just $25 for a raffle ticket. So go to WindellJr.com. And also, uh, Leah, give us that uh, URL for the uh, gloves program one more time. It is uh, nascarfoundation.org slash Dale Jr. There you go. And that's if you want to bid on any of those gloves. That's an awesome promotion that we do, the Dale Jr. Foundation for Nationwide Children's Hospital. And that's it, Dale Jr. All right, let's get to some odd history. And we got two this week. All right. Instead of one. Yeah. Um, One of them, interestingly enough, is about a racetrack. Islip. Speedway. Islip. Islip. And that's in Long Island. And it's where the Dillner family got their start in racing. On, is on, that right? Wait, that's funny because you can tell <laughs> he's saying not, that. He's not you can, t- you can tell you're not from Long Island. Well the thing because is you yeah, said in Long Island. You can obviously tell not I'm not Long from Long Island, Island <laughs> long before that. Um, not on Long Island. I did Long honestly Island. I didn't know until just then that you're not from Long Island. I almost yeah, had no, you fooled. No, you had me fooled. Wait, he's not from Long Island. <laughs> this feels like uh, well, it could be Long Island. Yeah, this feels like a thing that's important to him, and so it's okay. in the show. Well, it's a it's a good little fun thing. Well, read on. Let's well, see. Let's this see. is I the stuff I want to put in the show. Doesn't get this kind of preferential treatment. Oh, hold up. <laughs> oh, see, I usually don't oh, read oh, these things along with you. I want to react, but I see that it is also where the Dillner family yes, got their yes. start. Is in the script. In the script. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be I'm like, proud, hey, man. I'm proud of my roots, baby. I'll, I'll be like, hey, man, I want to try such and such for the show. No, nah, that's not going to work. We can't I'm do it that way. My roots. I'm going to slip this on in there, see if anybody. <laughs> but, he, but he finally stumbled on some odd history about right. Islip. Yeah. All right. <laughs> on Long Island. This better be the best delivery ever. All right. All right well, let's go back to July 15, 1971. There was a cup race at Islip, and it's only two-tenths of a mile. It's the shortest race track the Cup Series has ever raced on. And if I'm wrong, y'all can call Matthew. It's his Fifth racetrack. Yeah, yeah, two-tenths. Well, I'm just saying if, it, it's, if it's not the shortest, if there's it been is. shorter. It is. All right, I'm just saying. If He's it, just if, saying. If Twitter comes after me, come after Matthew. <laughs> this is never. his. This is all in here because of him. <laughs> all right. On that particular night, because of a scoring problem, NASCAR lost track of the laps being run. Accidentally threw the caution, or threw the checkered, I'm sorry, 20 laps early. And Richard Petty beat Friday Hassler, one of my favorite racing names in the history of NASCAR, Friday Hassler. That's pretty good. <laughs> by two laps, and he won his 131st career cup race. Uh, I'm sure this one probably didn't count on the Jeff Gluck scale. Mm. <laughs> um, being a two-tenths, too small. Yeah. Uh, don't tell nobody about them 20 laps they forgot to run, said Petty. You sure he's quoted as saying yep. that? Yep, from a, sourced it from an old article. Okay. It seemed like they ran 500 laps out there. I'm a terrible uh, Richard Petty. Yeah. This is your Richard Petty. Yeah. Like NASCAR. You being from Long Island, it oh, would and be then hard. He said, to... Then he comes to say, this has to be the smallest track in the country. So, hey, maybe it is. You relax for one moment and you run over three cars, he said. 
incredibly odd. That that is odd. You know what? I've heard some odd stories. I've heard before. odd history. Man, Boy, that that you story ain't about get more odd than that. Right <laughs> that story there. about Aslan. That, that was some odd <laughs> right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got some more odd history from New Hampshire at the Bush Race in New Hampshire in 2000. Driver Mike Borkowski had one of the worst days imaginable. After an already tough season, Borkowski's race at Loudon included spinning both Lennon Amick and Jason Jarrett and also crashing on the final lap of the race. Afterwards, he was fired from the Bill Davis team he drove for and his sponsor AT&T sued him, seeking a (laughs) refund of their sponsorship money for the time he drove for them. The lawsuit asserted that the incidents were roundly criticized by race officials, television commentators, and fellow drivers. And they... They claimed, AT&T claimed, that the race at New Hampshire was criticized so much by the media and drivers that it actually damaged the brand. <laughs> oh, my god! It's incredible. The lawsuit was settled out of court on January 2001. That's a bad day at the racetrack. Good grief. Thanks, NASCAR man, for teeing us up on some of this stuff. Go follow him on Twitter. He's an awesome follower. Yeah. Follower. <laughs> You're definitely not from Long Island. He's an awesome follower. <laughs> Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter. (laughs) You guys. Man, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Having Dale Jarrett on was great. I've always kind of wanted to have him on the show, be able to talk about that part of his career, the one that doesn't get too much publicity. Yeah. Uh, But before we go, let me share you uh, guys a little something about a partner that's been on the show for a long time pristine auction pristine is well pristine is authentic memorabilia website where you can <sighs> bid and win without going to the auction house nailed it you can bid and win anywhere anywhere anytime anytime from the comfort of your own home car while jogging i don't know if anybody's really doing it while that is happening but <laughs> if you're at work you can bid there you know if you don't want to get fired yeah maybe try right. it at home yeah, you know, last last time after you said nobody listens to the podcast on their couch, on their TV, yeah. we had a few we, weirdos that said yeah. they, you know, like me, that yeah. said they listen to the podcast on TV. Yeah, I was a little <laughs> taken aback by that, that somebody takes their te- their smart TV and listens to the podcast that way because it's television. But <laughs> anyways, give Pristine's daily auctions a try. Plus, don't forget about the 10-minute auctions. They're fun. It's like running a qualifying lap. All bids start at just one buck. The biggest thing... We can tell everyone about Pristine Auction is the authenticity of these items. I know it because I've signed for Pristine. So all the stuff that you see there is is signed by the real person. There's no fakes and no phonies. I think that's important because I think that there are a lot of, a lot of fakes and phonies out there. But you can trust Pristine. Pristine. You can trust them. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, before the show, we spotted a black and white 8x10 photo because there ain't no other size of photo than an 8x10 if you ask me. 8x10 photo signed by Junior Johnson and Richard Petty. They were good. You know, th- th- those yeah. guys made it okay in their career. Uh, the photo has them standing feet on the bumper of an old car in front of a barn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. There's nothing that says badass and putting the old do foot you, on a bumper. Are, does Dillner pick these yeah, items? Yeah, of course yeah, I do. Of course I he does. find, like, if there's a cool that Elvis die cast or something cool like this, why put it? Oh, here's a die cast of Kyle Larson again. No, there's... No, no. Find me a dang photo with a foot on a bumper and <laughs> by God make me read it, please. That's what I'm trying to do. There's a 8x10 fo- photo of Junior Johnson and Richard Petty. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> so what, what's, uh, was the, what's the price on this one? Right $14. Uh, I what's looked the, right before right, the show. What's the $14. price on that Larson diecast? Larson diecast, uh, I think they had one for like 6 bucks right now. 
No so way. when I was on there, there's all sorts of diecast stuff that starts Six at a dollar. Yeah. You know, it might not end there, but, you know, it starts pretty the, cheap. There are some really, really inexpensive things on, Good on Christine, for sure. Well, let's try to find the least expensive, the most inexpensive menu. There's a Dale Earnhardt Jr. 8x10, I believe it is right now, yeah. that's starting at a dollar, and nobody's bid on it yet. It's a dollar. Really? So maybe I should start driving the price up for you. No. <laughs> no. That, why did you want to? That, that goes against everything that Christine's about. <sighs> you could bid on it, Dale. <laughs> so if you could have photos of yourself. Loser. Don't bid on your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Go check out pristineauction.com now. It's free to register, free to bid, and, of course, you only pay for the items you win. That's Pristine Auction, spelled P-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, auction.com. And when you register, please select Dale Jr. Download Podcast from the drop-down menu in the How Did You Hear About Us section. We want Junior Nation to let them know that we sent you there. Happy birthday, everyone. <laughs> happy birthday, everyone. Oh, happy bidding. Um, happy bidding, everyone, and see you next week on the Dale Jr. Download. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo.